yeah anyways it's 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 great to be here with you yeah yeah it's good to be with you man so yeah i'm with josh uh slizzard man is uh i think the, <laughs> the first name that i knew you as um but yeah back when i was at gymnastic bodies trying to like maintain anonymity yeah well i was gonna say man a I, long I time feel like ago you have uh quite the reputation in that realm of like gymnastics strength training but i have to admit that you were kind of in a different circle to the circle that I was in, not that I was in even a, a large mm-hmm. circle in terms of my training. So I don't think I ever really did communicate with you or anything. So I'm very interested mm-hmm. to know, like the first uh, mention, I, the first mention of you recently was when I had Yard on the podcast and he mentioned you a couple of uh-huh. times. And in the comments, some of the commenters wanted me to get you on the podcast as well. And um, I kind of wanted to have you on as a guest organically to that because you seemed like the right guy for the topics I wanted to address today. But um, sure. before I kind of ask you some of those questions to the for what inspired me to get in touch with you, do you mind just giving like a bit of a, um, a quick backstory to your training, how you got into gymnastic strength training and where you are now with everything? Yeah, it's and I'm always kind of uh, unfortunately living on the edge of what I can handle, and uh, I don't necessarily recommend that to anybody. But when you're trying to do something, it's hard to be any other way. Yeah. So <laughs> the sacrifices we make. Yeah. So um, you know, I came to gymnastics stuff pretty late in life. I think I was 27 when I uh, found gymnastic bodies. Okay. Is that right? It was it was early 2008. Yep. I'm going to be 39 in November. Um, it's about right. It's yeah. close <laughs> enough. Yeah, so I think that's about right. 26, 27. Yeah. And, um, Were you doing any training before that? Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. 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 I was already like, I was actually less strong than my peak. Um, I would say, you know, I started, I started like, formally strength training when I was five Mm. and you know for that time that was exceptionally early I think that's more common now so back then uh, if you read the uh, if you go and look at the American Academy of Pediatrics that that was before people knew that exercising was good for kids not bad for kids and when I say exercising I mean weightlifting really Um, okay yeah, yeah. So there was all there were these fears that you'd get joint injuries or you'd stunt growth and this and that. And um, you know, since then there's been a huge amount of research because you know youth sports are a big deal, and nobody wants to hurt a kid. Like uh, so, you know, when you don't know the the general stance is always well that sounds dangerous, so maybe we shouldn't until we know better. Yeah, and um, you know. And then on the other side, like out in the real world, like there's no obvious uh, harm coming to any of these kids who are doing any of these things, right? So uh, outside of injuries that are a part of general training, it's not like there's anything special going on. And um, as time went on, they kind of figured it out. Well, my pediatrician was one of the few people, is pure luck, you know, Michael Papsiak, um, he was one of the few people who was very ahead of the curve and... I don't know why, but um, he he just recognized, you know, as long as he's not screwing around, it'll be fine. So he, I think he actually wrote a letter for my dad to take to the local YMCA that my doctor said it was okay for me to 
uh, you know, work out. So like I was on the rowing machine and then when I was seven, I started using the Nautilus machines. I wasn't allowed to use free weights until I was 13, which, you know, is really unfortunate. Um, but, um, was that just cause they were still like, that's still where the line was drawn in being cautious, not the free weights, but something that it was, control. it was back then for some reason, people felt like machines were safe for kids, but free weights somehow weren't. Yeah. And I think the big thing was that, um, there just wasn't knowledge or experience at that point in time. And a lot of it was liability, you yeah. know? Um, yep. so that, and, and that's, you know, it's, that's a, that's a hard thing to sort of get, get used to when you're not the business owner. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was, the, that's, that's the basic background. And so, you know, I got very lucky along the way, the, the, the people at the gym really kind of adopted me and because I treated the gym just like they did. I waited in line. I wasn't running around. I enjoyed being there, and I learned from them. Yeah. And uh, there was this guy, Chris. He, I forget, I think he was a run, he was either running back or a linebacker for University of Georgia. Big black dude, super cool. He taught me so much, you know, and um, just, just about, like, how to do exercises correctly. And... Um, and, and I responded really well. Like, I mean, at 12, I was doing sets of 20 reps on the Nautilus bench press with 200 pounds, mm. you know, Jeez. and we just arbitrarily, we arbitrarily decided that that was as heavy as I was going to go. We, we didn't know anything either. So, yeah. you know, we just figured, well, that's pretty strong. That's stronger than a lot of the adults in here. Uh, we don't want to hurt your bones and we don't know anything. So we'll just kind of hang out here. Yeah, but that that seems like such to a young guy. And when I say young, I mean like twenties. Um, such a enviable and valuable thing to have got yourself into at such a young age. Did you find that there were um, was there a significant difference between your um, physical development as a kid compared to your peers? That is a good question. Um, I've got pictures from when I think I was like ten. And I was a pretty muscular kid. I wasn't like necessarily big and bulging. I mean, my son is more buff than I am. Not like the little Hercules kid. Yeah, I wasn't like, well, that kid was being given steroids. Um, I think those Italian, I, I forget if they're Italian or uh, somewhere in like ex-Soviet Union, but the, the um, kids are doing like 90 degree push-ups at five years old and stuff. Yeah, I think we've all seen them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's more of what I looked like, but not quite as, uh, as thick ripped. muscled, I'd say. Yeah. Oh, I was definitely as ripped. I was nothing but skin and muscle. Aww. Yeah, Jeez. I mean, like I have pictures of me when I was sixteen in the woods. Now I was one hundred and sixty pounds at like almost six foot two, and I mean, it was just like somebody had taken a chisel, you know. But that was just my body. I mean, I was always like that. Yeah. I just, uh, and then when I, um, and I, I quit going to the gym at 13. From 13 to 18, or almost 18, I didn't do anything. Because I, I didn't really get along with my dad. Um, you know, he, he had a very limited toolbox as a parent. Yeah. And um, he did the best that he could. And, um, and he always, I think, had really good intentions, but there was a lot of friction between us over a lot of things. And at some point I just hated being around him more than I liked being at the gym. And since yeah. he was my ride, you know, that was kind of the end of that. But yeah. I always just ran around, I climbed trees, I jumped over things. I spent at least eight to 10 hours a day on a bike or a skateboard, yeah. you know, or, or both. I mean, I was, I was always moving. So, you know, then I went back to the gym 
and my my counselor in um like because you know everybody gets assigned a guidance counselor in high school over here or at least they did when i was going to school uh, i don't know that they ever did anything for us but i remember they pulled me aside when i was uh i think a couple of months into my senior year and they were like josh uh are you doing are you are you doing steroids and i just laughed <laughs> i was like what what are you talking about what's that but i had started lifting weights again a couple of months before and i went from like 160 pounds to 182 pounds in like three months and i mean i still had like no body fat and i was doing the body for life program i had seen it and uh, i got some protein shakes from eas and i was going to the gym and i literally just did what was in the book and it's like you know essentially like uh, you're, you're training upper body and then low, it's an upper lower split. And, uh, you know, the volume is relatively high and you're training like once every four to five days, upper body and lower body. So it's kind of like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but you're switching Monday is upper, Wednesday is lower, and then Friday is upper. And then the next week is the opposite where the Monday and Friday are legs and the Wednesday is upper. And, yeah. um, you know, they, they had you training fairly close to failure and, uh, you would fail on the last set typically. And it's pretty standard, you know, um, and, uh, it worked really well. And, um, yeah. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, I did respond faster to exercise than most people. And, um, do you think that's to do with the, um, the fact that you did oh, it when genetics. you were younger, or do you think it was more the genetics? I think it was more genetics, uh, especially when it comes to size. Like, my arms are big for absolutely no reason. Like, I haven't worked out in seven years, really. And I'm just, like, flexing now, and people will, you know, see. And I'm not that big anymore, you know. And you can tell, like, this is not well-exercised muscle. But, like, my forearms, there's no good reason for them to be the way that they are. <laughs> there's really not. And they're small, like people, you know, the people still think that I work out and stuff. And, um, I, I haven't in, in years really just due to injuries in the last two years, I was just too busy with residency. Right. And, um, but yeah, so like, you know, it's sort of skipping ahead. So anyways, I joined the Navy, I went into the Navy SEAL program and, uh, I crushed my axillary nerve, which controls the deltoid and a few other small muscles. And it took a couple of years for me to get feeling back in in the left shoulder and it took about seven years to get like full function in all areas back but um i got very lucky i healed fairly well and even during that you know i had gotten really strong because the only way to come back from something like that is to make sure that you're trying to you know safely use the areas that need to become re-innervated and that that provides a uh, top-down drive that does have an enormous influence on neural regeneration yeah now I, I i didn't know that it's just you know i was being stubborn and um i just went to the gym for probably a year at least before i really saw any results in terms of my shoulder getting better and all i could do was like deadlift once a week and a few other small things, you know. Because that's all you wanted uh, to do or that's what you could do? It's just all the shoulder. I couldn't squat, um, so I started doing front squats on the uh, Smith machine because that was the only thing that didn't immediately make my entire arm go limp. Yeah. Um, The deadlifts I could do 
uh it's just that like afterwards my shoulder was so fatigued that i you know i just couldn't do anything i did everything with my right hand at work Hmm. um and and so like people don't know you know i was a gunner's mate so it's like we we're moving hundreds of boxes of ammo that weigh like 50 to 100 pounds each pretty frequently Hmm. and you know you're cleaning guns these guns don't weigh nothing like the 50 cals probably weigh 70 pounds when they're together the barrels like i think 30 pounds and the receiver is a little a little more and um you know i was carrying these things around i just grabbed it by the barrel and held it in like you know a hammer curl position and i'd walk you know up and down the stairs like 600 feet from the back of the ship to the front if i needed to yeah and um like why was i able to do that dude i don't know um <laughs> You know, I just could. And um, I, the one thing I will say is that because I had been taught a lot of the good basics and I had a really, you know, there's different kinds of intelligence. Like some people are capable of, in a very short period of time, learning to draw perspective, learning to draw depth. And then people like me could spend months before we're even able to like prop, like with the same amount of effort and maybe more time just not going to accomplish, you know, a quarter of what somebody who's just sort of innately more talented in that area Hmm. can accomplish. Right. Yeah. I've always been able to, I've been able to learn physical stuff exceptionally quickly. And I I can't tell you why, like when I was fighting, you know, it really didn't, I, I understood that the goal was to make things move the wrong way and to rattle brains and, you know, to hit areas that are inherently weak. And, and, and uh, sorry, just are you talking fighting as in uh, you trained fighting or fighting as in just when yeah, you randomly get into fights? So, the reason that I went back to the gym when I was 18, I went to Israel when I was 16. There was some trouble over there that I won't get too into, but it was it's pretty interesting. We talk about it another time, perhaps. And um, so, I ended up getting sent home for my own safety, and this was in uh, the, the fall of going into winter of 1998 and uh or 99 maybe was it 2000 no 98 98 going into 99 it was my junior year of high school so i went on a couple of uh outdoors trips for the rest of the school year where i did school just while hiking which was awesome and that was through a place called project soar in uh north carolina they're a wonderful place and anybody who can send their you know kids there should strongly consider it it was the first so i have adhd and uh i get i learn quick i get bored easily um and as a kid when you are strong-willed you get bored easily that's a recipe for trouble and people don't really have the toolkits to teach kids like that Mm -hmm. how to become successful in the world you know and my parents certainly didn't and uh this place that's what they do they work with kids who have various uh like learning disorders and uh, behavioral disorders and they do an exceptionally incredible job and they do it largely through immersion and so like we would show up and we were responsible for certain things you know we kept the cabin clean we meal prepped we went to the pantry and found the things we were looking for if we learned how to run a food budget we went to the store and bought art the food that was in the food budget, obviously with adult supervision. Hmm. We distributed the supplies, we packed, we we learned how to read topographical maps, we planned the we planned like a, you know, six, seven day hiking trip and we went and, and you know, it was two week sessions. And so I mean, you know, it's 
that's a very short period of time to pick all those things up, but kids are very capable. Yeah. And um, it was the first place that I ever felt like I was treated like a person. Yeah. You know, before that, yeah. I just felt like I don't know what I felt like, but I didn't feel like anybody, you know, ever was interested in what I wanted. They were just trying to push me along whatever was supposed to be done. Yeah. And I think a lot I, of kids would feel like that. I think so. And I, you know, um, it's, I'm not trying to be too critical of, of all that because it's very difficult, you know, to try and be individualized with a large group of kids when you only have like one teacher. It's just mm. not possible. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it's very frustrating on, from the kid's perspective, you know. So anyways, um, the next year, you know, while I was in Israel, one of the guys that uh, was at the school, he fought Muay Thai in Los Angeles and he started teaching me some stuff and I had learned some stuff from books. And like, and it was funny because like I learned how to grab punches and throw people with a hip roll uh, just from seeing it in pictures and I ended up doing that in a brawl a couple of months later. And um, it feels satisfying, doesn't it? Yeah, and like I, you know, and I was, you got, like I was scared out of my freaking wits, man. Like, you know, we we had a situation where six guys were coming after us. They wanted one of them wanted to fight Jeff, and then uh, they went out in the soccer field. Jeff immediately flattened this guy. Everybody yells, "He's a kickboxer!" And they all rush the field, and all of a sudden, it's just a madhouse. And then, you know, like five hours later, a bus stops outside of our our dorm, and all these guys have knives, and we lock ourselves in. And it's like two and a half hours before the police get there, and then a couple of months later, these guys are still hunting for us. We're like defending ourselves at school with like broken. Um, uh, broom handles that we stuffed down our pants and we spent like two days learning how do you stuff them in your pants so nobody can see them but you can get to them quickly uh, how do you and, and we, we, we taught ourselves how to defend ourselves from people with knives very pretty much like tomfa fighting for people who are familiar with like the Philippines and everything mm-hmm. and um, like Salat um, and uh, you know and for me it was just like all right this is what we're doing. It's all good, but I've never really, I've never really freaked out about too much, and I think that throws people off. I'm, I'm so in the moment that it's just like, all right, well, this is what we're doing now, and I really, I, I process stuff later, but that never really bothered yeah. me. Um, and so, I wanted to learn more about Muay Thai, so I came back and uh, I found uh, Dave Young's kickboxing, and he was a very egotistical guy, but. Um, he was a good fighter, and he taught me a lot of solid basics. So I went to, um, I was with him for a couple of months, and then I found my real trainer, Manu and Toe. That guy is still like a big brother to me. We haven't talked in years and years. He's still in Atlanta, and uh, he was known as the shaman of Muay Thai. Um, like, he was amazing. When I was training with him, he had six active world title belts. Wow. And... Yeah, it was crazy, and I used to train with him. I ended up becoming, like, one of his main sparring partners for his title defenses. And, but, I mean, I lived at the gym. Like, I'd literally, I'd leave school at 3 o'clock, and um, I would be at the gym by 3.30. And I, you know, would leave at 11. And we would go to the Chinese restaurant across, like, just up the sidewalk, and they all knew him. And they would bring us everything that wasn't on the menu that, like, they ate. And I mean, you know, it was like, it was the bomb. And 
They were wonderful. I'd crash at his place every Friday and Saturday. We'd get up early, watch cartoons, eat breakfast, and then jog for an hour and go to the gym. And I was surrounded by professional fighters and pro wrestlers. This was at Obaki's Fight School in uh, Roswell. And um, yeah, I was mentioning this. Some people will remember this. And uh, Goldberg, the uh, professional wrestler, was half, half owner. He was there. He would always be there watching TV Sunday mornings. He was so big. It doesn't even make sense. And he was just a cool dude. Like, he would just chill with you. That's, That's so cool, cool man. man. It's, it's like, like a very small detail to emphasize, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't think people realize how big wrestlers are in person. They just see them on oh, the ter- TV and it's like, they're a spectacle of a human being. <laughs> listen, listen. So, Kevin Randleman, I don't know, people my age who were into MMA will know who Kevin Randleman is. They will know yeah. who Mark Coleman is. Mm-hmm. I watched these guys go to war like three times a week, just in training. And to see two, like, you know, essentially national champion wrestler level people go at it is like nothing you can imagine. Mm. And this is uh, full MMA sparring? Yeah. 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 Well, like, yeah. I mean, and and back then, you know, there were not very many rules. And, like, primarily they were training their wrestling together. And um, it was like watching Titans, man. It was, it was like, you know, if you watch like uh, the the God of War cutscenes and stuff, I'm telling you, it was like that, but in real life, it was just bananas. The, The way that they could move and how big they were and how fast they were. And then, like, you see them, you know, grapple with an up-and-comer. And I remember one time, I don't know what happened, but Mark was wrestling with this guy, Brandon Lee Hinkle, who was making waves in the amateur circuits at the time. And um, somehow, it, it seemed like they were just wrestling and just, like, you know, battling for a position on the top and trying to get a takedown. And then all of a sudden, they were spinning sideways in the air, and Mark had Brandon's face in his hand. It was like a sideways pile driver. I don't know what was going on. And they just slammed, and I was like, holy fuck. People can't do that, right? <laughs> like, I don't mean, like, legal. I mean, just, like, physics and stuff. It was just, you just don't understand how how good these people are and, and how when they look like they're, you know, not doing a whole lot, how good you have to be to make them not just completely trash you. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I used to spar stand-up with Mark Coleman, and he's a terrible boxer. But, but his mostly because he's he was scared. It's just not his thing, and he's the nicest guy, and I was terrified of him because you have to understand that his shoulder was bigger than my face. <laughs> they were huge when he was in his prime. Oh my god, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa what? <laughs> yeah, I was. It was an amazing place to be, you know. They and they all adopted me. They really they they took good care of me. It was a wonderful place, and I still miss that time. And, um, you know, those experiences you never lose. And um, incredible, man. Such, such like, like an it, epic snapshot in time to be present, present for. It really was. And a lot of that shaped me because, uh, you know, like Manu would tell me, oh, that girl right there, she slept with, like, this person and that person. You need to stay away from her. Gold digger, this and that, and you don't know, you know, because I was young, I was naive. I just spent all my time doing what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I didn't really pay attention, and like I didn't understand the concept of lying, you know. So it was a long time before I really understood, um, and uh, you know, it was it was just an amazing an amazing time, 
And uh, that's really where, you know, I got back into physical training after, you know, quitting at 13. And so, you know, during that first six months, again, I just like exploded. And like, I was, you know, there were a lot of things we just stopped adding weight to because it just didn't seem like there was a point. Like on those, you know, like the 45 degree Mm -hmm. leg press, I was doing sets of 20 with 900 pounds. I think it was 890 technically. Because it was like nine plates on each side of the uh, of the thing, and we could have put more, but it was just like we were going for explosiveness. So if I was slowing down, we didn't add more weight, and I could move really explosively at that weight. And yeah. it was like this was like knees to chest, like before I realized that was not the yeah. best way to do it. And um, so this is a very large range of motion, and people who've been on those machines, you know, will will understand like that's not nothing. Yeah. And I, I used to send people yeah. flying, like when I would when I would do a front kick or like a teep. For people who know Muay Thai, yeah, like people would go flying back like eight feet. I mean, be, you know, it was just like people think that machines don't build strength and they yeah. are out of their freaking gourds, man. Machines build strength just as much as anything else. It's just different in some ways. You know, you just have to know what's going to work well for you. And I, I couldn't squat, man. I don't know why. Deadlift came natural. Your proportions, you know? maybe? I, I have... I have really long legs for my height, and I had nobody who could really teach me how to squat. I was surrounded by people, several of them had excellent squats, but they, for whatever reason, we just couldn't teach me how to squat. Hmm. You know, it was the one thing. I don't know. You know, when I was in my late 20s, I finally learned how to squat properly. And um, some of it was foot weight distribution, but a lot of it was just the basic form. Like the issues that I had all got fixed, like by basically doing what I teach, I have a YouTube video where there's, um, I just teach like the doorway squat and this is just how you figure out, you know, what helped me was watching Stuart McGill's, uh, explanations of hip structure and lower back injury. And from there, you know, I was just like, Oh, okay, cool. So really all I need to do is figure out how my hips move well and then and just adjust my uh, squat stance to reflect that. And that really fixed most everything. The other thing is tactile cues. So as I learned how the nervous system worked, I learned how to quickly manipulate people with light touch to make them do what they needed to do and and then not need me. Um, And I did the same thing for myself. And it's really simple. It's just, you know, if you have somebody whose, you know, knees buckle in or in squat, which is like one of the big issues, because, you know, you can tell them all you want, keep the weight in the middle of your foot. That's a bunch of waste of time. If you just set people up in a good stance to where they can move to the desired depth without, you know, losing a neutral lumbar spine, then the next thing that you do is once they're there, you just touch the outside of their knees, just touch, just enough to where they can feel you, zero resistance. And just say, just keep touching me, just keep touching. And just put your fingers to where their knees should be. And as they go down magically, that's all it takes. And you only need to do that for them a couple of times before they can start like finding it themselves. And that's, you know, that's the advantage of training partners and good coaches Yeah, is, is that little things like that, can you know make up for weeks months sometimes years of bad habits Mm. and and it can happen in just a couple of training sessions Mm. so um so anyways uh you know after all the fighting stuff uh, i actually had a bone spur in my knee probably from a fall that i had when i was 13 it was behind my patellar tendon yeah so i had to have that cut out and then um 
you know, I got, but and that, that kept me from having my first professional flight. And that really took my life down a different track because after that, you know, I was working in a warehouse and then I ended up joining the Navy and doing the SEAL thing. And I uh, washed out of training because of the uh, nerve injury. And then, um, and there's more to that. Like, I mean, I quit during my first hell week about 48 hours in because I couldn't use my arm very well. And then after we were doing our, um, I'm not even sure it was that long in. Um, and but, so this was because of the shoulder injury. Yeah well, yeah. well, like there's more the nerve. I mean, you know, if you can't use your arm, you can't use your arm. We were about to run, we were about to do the uh, longest mile, which is like as eight, I think seven or eight miles from the um, base that we were at going back to the um, Coronado base and uh you run a mile with your log you put it down you run back you grab your boat you run a mile past the log so you're leapfrogging so you're basically running three miles for every mile that you move forward and it takes it takes all night and i only had one arm and me and kevin lace were the the two big guys in boat crew too kevin lace is the um is dauber from american sniper and um his uh so we still keep in touch occasionally yeah. And yeah, um, oh, that was a totally weird thing. Um, so, anyways, well, I didn't know what happened to you guys, right? Like, I left training. I was in X Division for a couple of months while I was waiting for placement and going to physical therapy and everything. Yeah. And then ended up out in Japan, got out. So, life goes on. I never knew what happened. I ran into a couple of the guys um, from 24, uh, yeah, well, from I was in class 245 and 246. And, um, the a couple of the guys showed up and you could tell that like physically they were healthy i was bouncing in uh, a bar called mcfadden sports bar in cincinnati ohio and they um they showed up and i said hey i'd like to get these guys you know just kind of a, a quiet table away from everything and they're uh you know they won't they won't tell you these are navy seals um i know them i was in training with them can we take care of them? And so the the owners, you know, put everything on the house and just kind of let them chill. And you could tell that they were physically healthy, but uh, mentally, they you could tell they all had pretty bad PTSD. Mm. They just had the hollow eyes, thousand yard stare. Um, it was a bad time, I think, uh, to be. I don't know that there's ever a good time to be an operator, but. Mm. That was that was a pretty bad time. There was a lot of direct engagement. A lot of people died. Um, it's a very high density of operations going on. You know that was and and our 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 instructors disappeared, like to I think it's towards the end of our first uh, week of training. They came back like five days later and they just sat everybody down and they said, "All right, listen up. Going into Hell Week in a week." So we were just out watching truck after truck after truck after truck leaving Baghdad. And I can tell you for sure that before too long, you know, we're, we're going to be over there and it's not going to be like what we did in the nineties and the 2000 or like, you know, like eighties and nineties or whatever, where, you know, a lot of you are going to die. And, you know, like you look around, at least one of you for sure is going to die in the next couple of years if you make it. So, uh, you just need to know that. And, um, if, if that's not, you know, what you want, the bell's over there. 
And that was a weird moment. Like, but they're very honest. I mean, it's not like anybody's trying to, they, you know, they and, um, so anyhow, these guys went through a lot and, um, it's very hard to understand if you haven't been through any kind of trauma yourself, yeah. uh, what, what that means, yeah. you know? And, um, anyhow, so I ran into them and I, I never knew what happened to most of the other guys. I heard about a few people who had died, uh, from them. And then, um, you know, a couple of my other friends and Lace were doing well. And uh, that was the last I had heard. So then I'm in med school, and then American Sniper comes out. And I had no idea. My friends wanted to go see it. So I said, sure, why not? Let's go. And then, like, I see this guy on the screen, and I'm like, man, that looks like Kevin. That's so weird. And then I see him again. I'm like, no, that doesn't look like Kevin. That's Kevin. I was rattled, man. I couldn't sleep. What the hell? You know, we... Well, we were really close, and um, as close as you can be for, you know, having lived together for like eight weeks yeah. and just, you know, being just beaten down one up one side and down the other and being the two people that really, like, everybody in the boat crew relied on. Hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I left because I realized that this wasn't going to get better in a couple of months, and... At first, I thought that it would. So, you know, I got med rolled into 246, and I went through, and I was doing my push-ups. They wouldn't let me run for eight weeks. They were afraid that, um, you know, and rightly so, that the labrum would get damaged, which maybe it did. I don't know. But um, hmm. anyhow, I kept my training up. I went back in, and I went through Hell Week again, and I realized that I still couldn't use the arm. I was still doing everything. Like, everybody else had two good arms. I was doing all the dips, all the pull-ups, everything with, like, one good arm and one bad arm. Was yeah. it getting at all better, or you f- it felt exactly no, the same? No, but I couldn't feel it. Well, I couldn't feel it, so it's not like it hurt, but I knew that it was subluxing. I knew that it was getting in and out, especially on the pull-ups. Oh, okay. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I knew that the, the real issue was that I couldn't handle any weight on a backpack. So I knew that I wasn't going to make it through dive phase. I knew I wasn't going to make it one day through dive phase. As soon as we put on a scuba pack, I wasn't going to be able to do anything. I couldn't even wear a coat. Like my whole arm would go numb just from the weight of having a like a normal jacket on and the right. restriction that it. So my goal, there were a few things. We had a huge storm come in during the hell week of two, four, or five, and I never got out past the water. Only one boot crew made it out one time, and so I wanted to get out past the water. It was just one of those weird things you get fixated on that makes no sense looking back, but that's how it was. So I did that, and then um, finished up the next day, and then left. And that really affected me mentally. That that took a long time to get over because, you know, even though I knew that I was, you know, physically kind of screwed up, um, I, uh, you know, I felt like I was abandoning people. So, well, especially with the 245 guys, because they knew, like, physically it just wasn't a problem for me. And, like, it's not like I, I got rattled by anything. But I knew that, like, my body, you know, at this point I was no longer going to be physically whole enough to be... Uh, an operator which you know in hindsight was a lucky break mm. um well because I'm, I'm emotionally available for my family to a much greater extent than I, I think I'd be able to be and and I don't know you know some of the guys seem like they're doing okay but you can see that there's you, you never come all the way back and I think the key is that um you learn how to live with that rather than pretending like it doesn't happen and you know it's kind of like when people get injured and it's for a cause they don't experience as much chronic pain as people who have the exact same injury but it happened totally by accident Mm. and there was no gain from it you didn't save somebody it was just this bs that happened for no reason Mm. and um and some people are just inherently 
you know, I think I would have been okay, but I, I wouldn't be like I am now. And I like, yeah. I like how I am. So <laughs> there was a lot of luck that went in. So I'm sorry that kind of, you know, turned into a monologue ramble. Um, no, that's fine, man. That's all so interesting and so deep. And, it, it, there's, and there's a lot that you learn from things like that. And one of the, th- so the, you know, one of the interesting things, so I was getting ready. I hadn't even gone to boot camp yet, right? I had been training for two months. Everything was going great. You have to realize when I walked into the, um, to, to the recruiter's office, I, didn't, I wasn't planning on joining up. I was just going because my older half-sister said, hey, let's just do this. Maybe you'll like it. And so, um, so I left, and I smoked my last cigarette walking into that building, and so my cardio is weird. So at six years old, I could run a six minute, seven second mile. Mm-hmm. And because I just liked running, I liked the wind in my face. And for whatever reason, I just ran well. Yeah. So um, the, uh, and I know that because I got, we, we had a race at camp. And uh, me and this Russian kid, we, it was neck and neck. I don't know who won. Um, you'd need a slow motion camera to see the finish line. <laughs> and, um, but it was, you know, I just love, that's what I lived for. I liked competition. Yeah. And um, anyhow, I don't even remember what I was saying. Uh, I just got lost in that memory for a second. <laughs> but um, well, well, you were—I I mean, mean, you, you left, left the the, um, the Navy, Navy SEALs, and you obviously, obviously found medicine. medicine. Was oh there... yeah. So people wonder how I got to where I maybe where I met or like, you know, the background as far as training people, and so. I had to start learning how to fix myself when I was uh, 20. So I had these, I woke up one day and my whole body hurt from head to toe. It was fine the day before. And I don't know why. And I just couldn't get past it. So after a week of this, I was on the Get Fit Now forums, which are kind of defunct now. But, um, and I mean, I was trying to find some kind of resource. Has anybody run into this? Has like, you know, whatever. And I mean, after like a week and a half of spending like all day, you know, suffering through training when, and then, uh, which had all of a sudden become exceptionally painful and then, um, trying to find a way to get better. I ran across this mention of this book, uh, pain free by this guy, Pete, whatever, whatever. His last name's Egoskew, but I was like, the hell's this? And, mm-hmm. People are talking about it like it's like the newest chapter of like the New Testament or something, you know, and I'm an inherently skeptical person. So I'm just like this. There's only a few people who've heard of this. This sounds like total bull crap, but I'm pretty desperate. I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble, see if they even have this book. So I walk in and I think it was at number like four or three or something on the bestseller shelf. And I was like, well, that's weird. <laughs> I guess I'll let me let me let me see let me see what this is right. So by the end of the first chapter, I was standing in the uh, checkout line, and um, yeah. it's a great book. I think anybody who's going into physical therapy, occupational therapy, or really even uh, personal training needs to own Pain Free. Um, and the reason there's a lot of things that are wrong. And there, in terms of explanations for why certain things are what they are, when it gets into like the deeper, uh, the the what passes for deeper explanation. But is the, it, is the it wrong for um, because it's conjecture, or is it wrong because yeah. time's gone on now and it's been proven wrong? Even then, I think that uh, there, there's a little bit of foofy stuff in there, um, but 
the, the fundamentals is that your movement patterns change after you get injured. And when you favor something that's hurt, you don't always completely get rid of that compensation when the injury mm. heals. Yeah. And that leads to a chain of events that causes weird motion that sooner or later changes tension in the muscles in a way that causes pain. Wow, and that's really interesting. That's, it really is, because the thing is, is that, you know, like, I have torn cartilage in my uh, right knee, but I can still squat, you know? I can't necessarily run the way that I'd like to run, but um, there's a lot of stuff that I can do, and it's, you know, I never had surgery on it, and, um, you know, some of that is a little bit of luck, but I also knew enough to be able to sort of identify and correct the patterns that led to the injury and that has kept it from hurting and that's that's really nice yeah. um, and I've worked with a lot of people over the years you and that was my first foundation in um, sort of injury assessment and um, movement assessment and what was nice about it is that it's very simple and it's essentially, if a joint's moving in a way that it's not supposed to move, you should figure why that's happening. And here's what you're looking for. And what he did is he created this sort of very passive system that almost anybody can use to just relax muscles that are tight for no reason. You know, it's not stretching so much as it is just letting tension return to a more normal level by using appropriately supported positions yeah. and it is almost magically effective yeah. um, and, it, and you can do it on your own is it the cure-all to everything absolutely not but it's a very powerful tool in the toolbox and it, you know the more that you are kind of have some good foundations in those areas the more you'll be able to apply the, the more advanced uh, knowledge that you gain when you're really studying as a professional yeah. because it gives you linkages you're not just you don't just have facts or like individual systems you're you're it teaches you to understand why an ankle injury tends to cause knee and hip pain and why right. that ankle injury can actually be causing neck and shoulder pain even though the ankle doesn't hurt and right. by recognizing these things it gives you a good postural assessment, which has really been taken to an extreme that's inappropriate in modern like fitness culture. But when, you know, if people aren't hurting, so they actually did some really cool research where a lot of professional athletes when they're resting have absolutely fucking terrible posture. Terrible. Hmm. But as soon as they do sports specific movements, they look perfect. Right. So what matters the most is how you move under pressure, how you move under high tension and high strain. And your, your resting posture is often less important. Now, oh, if, okay. if, right, so if you squat perfect, but you sit slumped, that's not hurting you. Now, if that slumped sitting starts affecting your squat form, that's different, right? Those are two right. separate entities. And you do not have to sit perfect all the time in order to correct the squat form. You right. just have to be able to build an awareness of the difference between what you are doing and what you need to be doing. And that is not taught. That is not out there in popular culture because everybody is very extreme. And 
you know, most people are not built to be innate leaders. They're built to be somewhere in the middle of the chain of command. Hmm. And uh, well, that's just and it's just how social creatures work. Very few people are built to be. I hate saying alphas because I think that has a bad connotation. But um, most of us, I think, just recognize that the reward is not worth the uh, effort and the risk. And um, some of us just can't help ourselves, and and we don't. We we just want to be pushing for doing better. Most of us that are, I think, pushing to be at the top of the chain, just kind of for whatever reason, need to be in power. Yeah. And I and uh, I don't think that's the healthiest, but it's always how it's been. And um, most people don't want that. Most people don't want that responsibility, and I don't blame them. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's why I became a doctor and not a PA, you know, or a nurse and a nurse practitioner, is that I am comfortable being that person who, in the end, is responsible for whatever happens. Right. Not because, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want to be told by somebody else where my limits are, what the final decision is. I, I want to receive the training that allows me to eventually take that responsibility because I think that I'm capable of making the right decisions and applying evidence correctly and, um, you know, being one of the people that causes a lot of good outcomes as a result of that. And, uh, you know, that is, that's just me. And that's how I ended up becoming a doctor. Um, I didn't want to be a doctor. You know, it just kind of ended up being that the only way for me to do the things that I wanted to do with people was to become a doctor. So I did. And what what did you want to do with people? I wanted to be able to make, I, I hate saying, you can't make decisions for people. That's not how it works. You know, you know, doctors are teachers. You know, we, we have, there's a, people don't know root words. And um, I'm getting, you can tell, like, I have, you know, OCD traits. Um, all, all successful uh, physicians have uh, OCD personality traits, not personality disorders. Disorders disrupt your life and make your life worse. Traits mm. are just kind of pieces of who you are. And I, um, but for me, I wanted to help. I wanted to figure out where people are and now where they think they want to be and how good of an understanding they have of what it takes to get there. I want to understand what our barriers are, and I want to figure out a way to start. It's not about trying to be perfect. It's about figuring out what direction you're trying to go and prepping for the journey and figuring out what's keeping that prep from happening mm. so that we can start getting rid of barriers and making small goals and building success habits so that within the realms of what's possible, we can achieve success. And that's really what medicine is about for me. You know, and that sounds very vague, but I'll give an example. You know, on the adult side, you have a lot of people who come in who are overweight and stressed and depressed, and um, they have high blood pressure and they don't eat the best. And that's a lot of things to try and tackle, you know. Yeah. And so the the goal is like, and in my approach, you know, I can't say that other people do this, and I'm not the best for, you know, a high volume practice because I recognize that you can't fix all those things in five minutes, but you can start building a relationship. And if you can see people once a month for 15, 20 minutes, you can actually chip away at a lot of that. And yeah. so you start off just understanding, okay, what do you do for work, blah, 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 and then like, okay, what's going on in your personal life? Like, 
you know, what, what do you think? And one thing at a time, you know, is there a family history of high blood pressure? Tell me about your diet. Tell me about exercise. And then knowing exercise science coming from that background and knowing the physiological changes that happen that affect blood pressure, and then also having the medical background to understand the, you know, neural feedback loops and how the nervous system remodels over time. And knowing that some people remodel autonomic reflexes better than others, you know, not everybody can get off of blood pressure meds, um, mm -hmm. but we might be able to reduce dosages. We might be able to have two meds instead of four. We may be able to have one med instead of two and still have meet our goals and understanding, okay, here's the deal. I don't want, I, I think the two biggest things we want to tackle is, you know, stress management and your blood pressure. These other things we'll get to, but. The things we start here will affect all the rest. And so that's it. We said, really, which one of those do you want to work on today? Mm. Right? One target. You cannot do everything at once. And the same thing is true of training. And that's really what we try to get across, you know, at LabCoat. And I think we're still working on that with a lot of our content development. But the goal is to build success one piece at a time and to understand what is getting in the way so that you can apply successful methods. Mm. So, you know, because it, 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 to me, it's all the same. There's no difference between medicine, training, psychology. Like most things in life follow a general pattern. And mm. the, it's you, you have to be honest with where you're at and you have to recognize what your barriers are. And that's tough. That's tough because we don't like having barriers. I especially don't like having barriers. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's the that's one of the big challenges and we all want quick results and recognizing that you know that's not always possible and that that's okay that the that the important thing is moving forward and figuring out what we can do in our current circumstances is the key to starting to feel better about ourselves and to building you know success habits and recognizing them and that's what I love about being a doctor is that I can do that with nutrition. I can do that with their medical health. I can say, hey, I don't want you to be on these medications forever, okay? And the goal is to try and figure out ways to not need them. And most of that's going to be based around, you know, weight loss. But right now, these are going to give you 10, 20 years of health to work with. If we don't mm -hmm. do this... You're already having, you know, some shortness of breath going upstairs and a little bit of chest heaviness. You're, it's very likely that you're going to have a heart attack in the next five to ten years. These are going to add time. These are going to give us the time that we need to make things better, you know. Hmm. And even if we can't avoid it, we can make things less severe. We can make sure that recovery is better if something weird does happen. And, you know, it's all about I, I want you to have the life that you want. I don't want you to lose independence i want you to gain more you know and have it longer and i'd want to know um what you, you feel like we can start working on today if that's important to you too you know so, and, those, and, yeah. and so my patients you know uh really we, we 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 had a lot of really strong bonds because of that is, is it correct to assume, assume so based, based on, on what you've said there, there it sounds like from your opinion, opinion I know there's a lot of variables around it, but it sounds like it would be in terms of um, an individual's health extremely mm -hmm. beneficial to have a doctor or a GP that you're regular with that knows you 
Because see, yeah. for, for me, whenever I go to the doctor, I just book in with whoever. Like I've never had a family doctor or a, um, like someone I'm consistently going to. It's just to like wherever I can fit in. Are you kind of saying like from your experience that by the doctor knowing the individual, that's a significant step someone can take in the right direction to helping their health because the doctor yeah. so know you, your job, your kind of everything about you and that matters in making the decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's what we. I, I think it's. I think it's the most helpful thing, and um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a doctor that knows all of those things. But there's got to be some kind of consistency so that somebody can help you uh, recognize where things are getting off track and where they're not. And uh, not all doctors, you know, have the time for that. So you have to realize that you know a lot of doctors have 2,000, 3,000 patients on their roster, and you kind of have to in order to keep your doors open uh, under a traditional uh, payback model. And, um, you know, then there's other things like the, on the like um, VIP practices is what I'm familiar with, like direct pay, membership practices. There's a def- different ways to describe them where, you, let's say you pay, you know, $600 a year. Well, if I have a thousand patients, it sounds like a lot, but if you break it apart, that's three patients a day for 365 days a year. If I work 200 days a year, that's five patients a day. You know, let's say that half of my patients need to be seen, you know, every three to six months. We're talking about 12, maybe 12 patients a day because the other half only needs to be seen once a year because they're pretty healthy. So all of a sudden for $600 a year, you know, it's like, okay, well, we'll work in certain things so that A, it's worth it, but B, if you need an hour, I've got it. Most people don't need an hour, but if you need an hour, I've got it. If you need two hours, I've got it. And I've made the money on the front end to where I'm not that worried about a fee-for-service type thing where, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, looking for things that you can do in order to, um, you know, make money and, and just to, you know, pay your bills. And because um, medical practices, especially private practices, they have a lot of overhead. It's expensive. Not every building can be a medical building. The equipment has to be maintained. And because it's all medical grade, blah, 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 people charge a premium. You have to pay certain, you know, licensing fees essentially to be certified as a medical device and so on and so forth. So there's there's more than people think, you know, and and um, it's not cheap to keep a practice open. So if you don't have the money coming in, then you can't help anybody. And at the same time, nobody, you know, people think that doctors like, you know, want to be rich or whatever. And the truth is that there are better ways to make the money. There are better ways. There really are. I mean, like that people have no idea the stress and the responsibility that comes. Most people are not in charge of anybody's life. And they're not going to be held responsible for somebody else's life. They may be held responsible for like, you know, like store safety or whatever, but they're, they're not going to get like personally sued for it. The company might. They might get fired, but their life's not going to be totally over. They're not going to go to sleep, you know, worrying about other people's lives they're going to go to sleep worrying about like where do i get hired next and it's just not the same thing and and when you're making choices you know with medications and with diagnostic processes and 
you know, something goes wrong and that, that happens, you know, uh, you have to be willing to live with that. And, um, you know, so even after you're done with training, which is absolutely brutal, much harder than anything I ever did in the military. Um, oh dude, you just, there's no comparison going, you know, medical school, I didn't think was that bad, but school's relatively easy for me, but residency sucks. It, 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 everybody goes to counselors. I mean, everybody, um, especially in internal medicine. It's just, there's too many sick people. There's not enough doctors. And, um, so you're always just kind of crushed under the patient load and it's very hard to help. You know, you have enough time to keep, you know, updating the band-aids. Um, so I shouldn't say, you know, it's, it's hard to fix things. It's, you know, and, and the truth is that the other side is that people, are, um, you know, I'm, I'm 39 years old almost, right? That's 39 years of habits. I have my own baggage from my childhood and from my, you know, working experiences and my relationships. And even though I put a lot of effort into working on those things, it's slow going. It's really hard. And, you know, and it's easy to backslide and everybody has their own version of that. And, and that's what you're trying to work against. You know, you want people, we, we, it's easy to write down on paper what's going to work, you know, but because it's like, well, let's lose weight. That means eating less calories. I want you to get, you know, either carbon diet app or Renaissance diet app or some shit, uh, Noom, I don't care what you get, but I want you to use it. But then it's like, well, they're not used to logging. They're not used to paying attention to their food. They're used to meeting their friends after work, grabbing three beers and having the hot fries, you know, with cheese on top because that's how they bond. And those social connections uh, are the biggest thing that keep people sane, you know, and that's and, and a lot of those things get sacrificed uh, when you try to better your health and when other people aren't doing it with you. It's very hard to succeed, and that's the that's the X factor that the normal everyday person is living with, you know, is that once you're out and you're working and you have a family, you know, uh, it's very hard to all of a sudden live differently than all those people, and it's easy to be to just say, oh, we'll just find people who you know live the way that would be healthy. It's a, it's a pretty crazy expectation, man. It, it is, right? Because two-thirds of the world, two-thirds of the developing world, or the developed world, right? So all of your so-called first-world countries are, like, overweight. Hmm. Two-thirds of the adult populations are overweight, and it's getting worse, right? And that hmm. tells you right away that um, something is wrong. So you're talking about one-half of one-third, right? Because most people are either dating men or women, typically not both, you know? So um, just like using the, the numbers, what we're saying, what, like 20% of the population's available hmm. that, that might meet that? And then your personalities and political views and blah, 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 blah have to be like not oppositional enough to ruin the relationship, which cuts it down further. So there's really not that many... It's not realistic to just say, sure, you can just go date somebody who supports what you want to do. That's very hard. There's not very many of those people. And a lot of them are, you know, going to be more attracted to somebody who's already living that lifestyle, you know, just because physically those people are probably going to be more attractive. And, you know, it's just so it's harder to make that initial connection. 
if you're not mm. in that relatively small demographic. So it's just not a re- it's not a realistic message, you know, the the and so until it becomes somehow cool, you know, to to be looking for that change and finding ways to do it, it's, you know, and, and until it becomes something that's socially accessible to the average person without turning their life upside down, it's going to be an unrealistic expectation. It doesn't mean we don't work towards it, but we need, you know, that's where like, you know, couples counseling comes in. And what can we do? You know, this isn't about who you are. It's about your health. It's about, you know, setting a new, you know, like a new trajectory for yourselves, your relationship and your family. This can bring you closer together. But that's not the automatic mindset, you know, mm-hmm. that and people have to be open to moving towards that, too. And that really brings us into like the physical training thing, because all these factors play in, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, my my friend's uh, mom recently was diagnosed with fatty liver disease Mm. and was told to like, you know, you need to diet, you need to start doing some exercise to fix this. Um, And they did. But I I think it was like a month later, like they were almost back to normal, like normal habits again. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like you'd think, oh, fuck, like, you got to get them to stick to that thing, like stick to the diet, stick to the exercise. But in a way we're talking about like my friend's mom is, you know, elderly and Mm -hmm. in their day when they did their education, they weren't learning about like diet and physical exercise to the, definitely not to the extent that we were. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's almost like, can you blame them? Like you can blame it in the sense of, I feel like every adult has a responsibility to, be learning more and be open-minded and to learn things about themselves and how to improve themselves yeah but on the other side of the coin it's like were they ever armed with this information or helped or nudged in the right direction to even think like that in the first right. place because you got to right. assume this is a working class society that they're uh-huh. growing up in which isn't exactly like a think for yourself kind of mentality <laughs> so um it's like two um ways to think about it like one is damn it they should be you know being a bit more disciplined and be sticking to their diet and their exercise but on the other side it's like what what you were saying it's not just diet and exercise it's like when they're at home bored or when they have friends over or when they go over what are they going to choose to eat and Mm -hmm. there's just so many other factors that come into it that influence those choices that the doctor is basically asking them to change their lifestyle and then just saying like go out and do it, like go and give it a go. Right. Because they're not there to provide, I'm not saying in general doctors aren't there to provide support. I'm saying the treatment that this person received was like a, you know, go out and try it. <laughs> yeah. And no follow up, if that makes sense. And yeah, oh, no, it's because such like a defeatist where do you uh, go? method. Yeah, exactly. And we're trying, like you said, but there's just so many examples that you could mm-hmm. p- point out in society now where like it doesn't work yet because we're expecting too much of the average person. Right, well that's where like my take on it, you know, like with lab coat, the most, one of the biggest important things, and this is something that I really learned from gymnastic bodies, is that community is everything. Mm. You know, we're social people, we're social creatures. And 
uh, you know, COVID is showing a lot of subtle things. You know, people are a lot more stressed out in general. Some of it's uncertainty with jobs and everything else, but some of it too is this is a huge change for people. In some ways it's good because people are spending time at home and that they haven't done in forever. And at the same time, that's bad in a way because they haven't been there. They don't know how to cope with that. It's totally different. Yes, yeah. They they didn't grow up that way. They didn't live that way as an adult. So they don't really know how to live in close quarters with people for extended periods of time without losing their minds. Yeah. You know, and then on the domestic violence side, you know, one of the big escapes for a lot of people is that like the abusive member of the relationship often worked. Now yeah. they're not. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that have changed and, um, it, it, and, and then, like, you know, gyms aren't as accessible. Uh, people aren't quite hanging out the way that they used to. Um, it, you can't just go to the local restaurant and, you know, sit at a table with like, you know, six of your closest friends and four of their closest friends. So it's like this group and you feel like this connection, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, what we realized is that in, in the thing that we all missed and uh, one of the things that led to lab coat becoming a reality is that desire to have a positive community that wasn't just all talk but it was like no you know we want to be here and provide a place for people to come together and to feel like they've got something special like they matter and that um there are other people going through the same struggles so that they have the support that they need. You know, it's, it's mm. not all about fitness education. I mean, I think that's an important part of it. But the bigger picture is that, you know, these are people who want to do better for themselves. And mm. um, there's not a lot of places that, that ha- there's some smaller places that, that have that, I think. It's just not, it's not the norm. I think that it's slowly, hopefully, becoming the norm. We just have a background between medicine, nutrition, uh, you know, and exercise science to tie things together <clears throat> in a way that other people can't. It's very yeah. hard. It's very hard to, and it's not because they don't want to or because they're stupid. It's really the opposite. Um, you know, the sac- people really have no idea uh, what they don't know. You know, it takes a yeah. couple of years of really even being in medicine before you really have a good picture of how much we don't know. And how much things are tied together, and you know, it's uh, it's very humbling in a way, but it also is very enlightening. And a lot of doors opened for me, and I think for a lot of people, as as we have um, you know moved towards this and gone through this journey. And so it's sort of to bring you back to Yad. So you know, I was a forum moderator at Gymnastic Bodies for about five years, from 2000, I think around like. Uh, maybe September, October of 2008 until whenever it is that I finally uh, quit in 2013. And uh, you know, you're like one post away from 9,000 posts. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that it was a lot. I have all of my posts, I think, downloaded. And um, every year, I think I had over 900 pages of single space text. Wow. Yeah, because I randomly went on the Gymnastic Bodies website um, just looking up some stuff in prep for our chat and uh, found one of your posts. And um, yeah, it's, it's cute because it says medical school applicant 
exclamation marks. <laughs> and like, oh, a, yeah, that's so long 2012. Ago. So, so oh, which post was that? Since then. It's the perfect workout nutrition. I knew it, man. I knew that's what you found. <laughs> yeah. I, f- I think I found it by just searching Slizzard, man. And um, that's funny. Someone posted the article on Reddit saying uh-huh. that they use this diet plan. So I followed that and got to gymnastics bodies. But uh-huh. um, yeah, so you were you close with Coach Summer or were you just very uh, consistent on the forums that they knew you had, uh, they could give you the responsibility of moderating that all the discussion over there? So I, I had been really consistent and obviously uh, I was very strong coming in. You know, um, like I think uh, Marcus Bondi had, you know, recently somewhere in the last couple of years had put up what's apparently a world record for um, weighted pull-ups with like 16 pull-ups with uh, 100, 100 pounds or 120 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, when I when I was weighing, it didn't matter what I weighed, 205, 225, uh, I always did like five sets of 15 reps with uh, 120 pounds. Yeah. Always. Yeah, that was just like my normal workout. Um, yeah. I was very, very strong. And um, so I had like, within a couple of months, I had like a 10 second front lever, which at like, you know, six foot two or like what for people like 186 centimeters and, you know, 100 kilos is even today not very common. And I mean, okay. I could do the front lever rows, touching my hips to the bar without piking and all that stuff. I had a short strat. Well, I had a, I had a really good flat tuck, like 90, 90. I could do 10 push-ups, like full range. Didn't matter if I was on rings, floor, or parallel bar. They were all the same to me. Um, I, I was very all around uh, ahead of the curve, and uh, which worked against me, honestly. I was impatient. Um, things would always come easy for me and I didn't, I didn't know what I know now. So I didn't understand Mm. how to pace myself and, uh, we didn't really have the best guidance for that. And that's not anybody's fault. It's just, nobody had been working with adults at that time. This was the first time. So nobody knew what to expect. And, um, that's where a lot of like, I really, I think became valuable because I, I understood a lot and I was rapidly learning more because, I'm a very evidence-based person. I always was reading the research. I had textbooks even before I went into the exercise science program. Like by the time I went into that, there was the only places that I learned some new things were in neuromuscular physiology and a very small amount in cardiovascular uh, and cardiopulmonary phys. Everything else I already knew and I, I knew more than what we were talking about. And so I used to just hang out with like the professors and the PhD students because they they were more confident, they knew more stuff. We'd talk about a lot of things. I'd hang out in the lab and just like help record things and stuff and um help run some of the exercise tests and it was a lot of fun, you know. And um it was they were good to talk to because they you know, they could ask me questions that were challenging and um you know, it was a great sounding board and, and a place to learn and to, you know, find research and learn how to, uh, you know, process all of this stuff. Because I'd say, you know, I'm whenever this thing, am I looking at this right? You know, so, um, but the, uh, you know, and I don't say that to brag. It's just that, because um, I know it sounds, I, well, to me, it sounds like it. I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I, I recognize that, um, you know, I'm pretty to the point, and so I think that can sound very egotistical. 
but it's just like it's just kind of like the you know life uh for me and yeah. um i and I loved it. I mean, that's what I ate, braid, slept, drank, crapped out, you name it, man. Fitness, nutrition is what I loved. It's still what I love. And, and mm -hmm. that's, why, that's what makes medicine so much fun is that it's an extension of that. You know, yeah. modern medicine actually started in Sweden with, um, cardio, with cardiovascular physiology experiments in the early 1900s. Really, when you think about it, and, and like I'm not talking about infectious disease stuff with like germ theory and antibiotics and stuff like sure. that. But in terms of like the first steps towards really understanding human physiology, it's very new, and um, it, it's and it, a lot of it has come, especially early on, from exercise science, and um, I think it's a great background. But um, the like with lab coat, you know, it started really, you know, before any of that was even a glimpse of an idea with gymnastic bodies, uh, because of my success and because I was engaging with people and I was trying my best to not be an ass and to really help. And you can go back and read some of my posts. There were definitely moments where I was very, you know, condescending. Uh, I didn't mean to be, and uh, it was very common for me to apologize for that. And I think that's something that, you know, I, I can always say, you know, I never, I never wanted to just like have people, you know, take what I said without question or anything. I was really trying to help, but I didn't know how much I didn't know. I didn't recognize when I was being ignorant. And um, that was just a very interesting thing for me to, uh, to, to look back and to see how much, you know, I think that I've grown as, as a person. And yeah. that place was I, a big part like of it. Communication is a big part as well. Like it, it was what is in your head to other people, and yeah, kind of having to massage it, the, the delivery. If that sure. Makes sense. And, well, and I would make wild. I thought I knew more than I did at times, and I would make some wild claims, like, "Oh, I had this particular like Kareko, whatever the fuck, ligament hurting, and that may not be your problem." But how the fuck do I know that, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's a good chance that, that maybe that was involved, but it could have been like a number of other things and who knows, and it got better and it doesn't matter. But the, um, you know, it's there just when you're young and you're trying to find your place and you're trying to, um, you know, learn and, and teach, I think that it's very easy to think too much of your own abilities and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not, not because, you know, you're a bad person, but just because, you just haven't had the time or the education to have real perspective. And as you do, the message changes. And, mm. um, that was, that was one of the great things that happened at gymnastic bodies. But like that first half year coach said, Hey, listen, um, uh, I think you're doing a great job. I'd like to make you a moderator. I'd like you to be my guest at the next seminar. And, um, it, and it, he was, I mean, really, you know, was very generous and I mean I, I spent a lot of time out there I went out like twice a year for a couple of years I'd come out a day early and just watch him coach his kids um, you know his team there at extreme gymnastics and um, you know as, as a gymnastic coach he's really excellent um, hmm. and like one of the things you know like I remember one time Alan was uh, going getting ready for a floor routine and coach saw something, and, and, and I saw it too. I had a very quick eye, and I had done so much physical excess, uh, you know, assessment. And he saw this thing where Alan was just like not in the right position in midair during some of his layouts. And he said, all right, nope, go back, 10 rolls. All right. 
We've got 10 good rolls, right? And he, and he literally, he put him back through the entire sequence leading up to the move that he's supposed to be doing because something was wrong. And he, yeah, and he wanted to, and that was his way of finding where the problem was starting. And, um, which is a very sophisticated way of approaching things. I mean, I think you can sometimes like, uh, you know, I, I can see where it's at, but like, as soon as he saw, I was like, okay, all right, stop that. Go do hollow rocks for 30 seconds. Come back now do this. Okay. That's better. And then yep. move through, you know? And, uh, when you're dealing with like competitive gymnastics, you've got to be that nitpicky. Um, yeah. And, and he was never a dick. Like, he never raised his voice. He never cursed at anybody. The gym had a very, like, family feel. There was a lot of, uh, and, and he was firm. And he said, you know, um, you know, the only thing, and, and he's, one of the things that made him unique in the gymnastics uh, coaching world, especially at that time, I think this is probably still true, is that he cared less about talent than he did about attitude. Yeah. Yep. He didn't care how talented you were. If you couldn't show up on time and follow the gym rules, then you were out and you could yeah. go somewhere else. And, um, and, and I, that was, there, there was a lot of small things that I really learned from him like that, that were, you know, just good, just good life skills. Yeah. Um, and that was a very valuable, did I learn anything about training? Not really. Um, I, I learned about, you know, how he ran a successful gymnastics gym. That's not the same thing. Uh, I learned a lot about how to be, you know, a good coach, especially with kids. And, um, and he's, he had a lot of brilliant stuff, you know, and a lot of this is things that a lot of coaches have, but, uh, the thing that made him different was his more re relatively speaking, more organized approach to their physical development. And yeah, uh, whereas there was another was. coach, Nathan in Atlanta, who was almost the exact opposite, where he was a stickler for technique without much focus on raw physical development. And so his kids always had perfect twists and things like that. They weren't as strong, you know, and you only have so much time, right? Yeah. So it's not about right or wrong, but different people have different points of emphasis. And I'm not saying that Coach Sommer didn't have an emphasis on technique. But I would say that underneath everything, his, chill, his athletes had a sound physical foundation. And what people don't understand is that when you're in the gym from like four or five years old and, you know, you never really, you never have a chance to learn bad habits, it's easier to get stronger. And young muscles yeah. harder to injure, like just intrinsically is harder to injure. Um, you know, they're lighter, the levers are shorter. And so they just don't really run into many problems. And then as they start growing, that's where issues come in. And, um, mm. you know, there's everybody has had to take like six months to a year of just not trying to make progress with certain areas and focusing on other things that were less stressful, but equally important for an all arounder. And, mm -hmm. um, and that, that's also was a very, that was kind of cool to see, you know, um, and the way that he had things with his kids, you know, they, people don't realize they had a lot of rest between individual repetitions of doing things. And the, um, you know, the, the physical like training was really only 20 or 30 minutes of the three to four hour gym session, you know, in terms of like basic strength. And that's more of a time management thing than anything else. And he did have things mixed up in an interesting way. Um, you know, it, it's not how you would want to do it at a professional like adult level 
but developing athletes are a totally different ball of wax. You know, you, they're, you're, you have different goals for them. And, um, I think that, you know, he was clearly very successful with that. The problem is that that didn't translate over to adults at all. And, um, you know, I could provide the, you know, the bridge there, but as the business got started in 2012, um, the, the feel of the place changed dramatically very quickly. And it became more about the, what was being said than what worked. And it became a little bit of an ego thing, I think. And I spent over a year being, uh, moderated myself so i was still hypothetically like in public it looked like i was still a community leader but all of a sudden i was not allowed to say anything without somebody stamping their approval on it and it wasn't because i was going against anything i was just saying like okay well you know these templates are not really a good uh like as the foundation stuff came out you know like i i got sent i was one of the people who was reviewing things before it got released and i just got sent the uh templates and i said well is this supposed to be like a training plan or is this sort of like a checkpoint analysis and because this is fine as a checkpoint analysis it's not ideal but i mean like it's a good place to start i guess but there this would not this would not be very good as a um as an actual training plan it's just not it's not structured to reflect how human bodies respond to exercise and right. um and it's going to be disproportionately bad for bigger people right. and it's gonna, it's not going to be great for anybody but it's going to be disproportionately bad and then you'll have some people who will succeed no matter what because they're gifted but yeah. um the um and that's exactly what happened and i was like and it got sent oh it's not the final thing and then I asked to just review the text because, like, if you want to review, I can give it to you. And at this point, I'm more than educated and enough to be able to give you, like, uh, some really helpful, you know, updates on how you might want to revise it moving forward. And that just never happened. And then I was trying to teach, like, progressive exercise and, like, you know, you can't really make 15 rep jumps every week and expect to have good results. It's too much. You're going to wear yourself down. And then the deloads, you really don't, you you might, you can try it the way it's written. And if you find it's not working as well, I would try this instead and just see what works, you know, use the templates as a guide, don't stick to them like a religion. And um, that just didn't go over very well because you cannot have two different messages in one program. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the brand, brand is Coach Summer, so anything going against. Well, and it's his place. I mean, he, Gymnastic yeah. Body, he started it, he owns it. And it doesn't, you know, and, and that was something that, um, you know, as much as I didn't like it, I did recognize that, you know, from a business standpoint, he did the right thing. Yeah. And business, I think that people yeah. need to understand that is that, um, you know, he had a couple of kids, he has a wife, he has a house, he has a lifestyle that he wants, he's worked hard for a long time. Yeah. Now, I don't think that any of that is a um, makes any of the less uh, good parts of it any better. But, you know, when somebody has a business, it's theirs and it'll either succeed or it won't. And when it's theirs, it doesn't matter if you agree with what they're doing. If you don't agree, go somewhere else, make your own thing. And um, it was hard for me to leave but it was clear that there was just a difference in approach. And uh, my 
my input wasn't being valued. And then I start like, I remember one time I was in biology lab and I got a call and it was coach and I was like, Oh, I don't know what's going on. What's up coach. And like the first words out of his mouth, like, tell me why I shouldn't have my legal people contact you with a, you know, like lawsuit. And I was like, ah, well I'm crapping my pants. Right. Um, I guess we could start with why it's like, don't mess with me, Josh, you know what I'm talking about? Like, no, I don't. And, uh, so, and you have no idea how stressful this was for me. I mean, this was like terrible. I mean, I didn't sleep well for months and, um, cause it really, you know, it came out of nowhere and long story short, what happened is that Daniel Burnham had, uh, put on a, uh, very basic, like gymnastic strength seminar, nothing, not using any GB stuff, nothing, just real basic. Like, let's just get people together and have some hands-on time correcting basic plange forms, some front lever stuff. Let's teach you a good ring support. You know yeah. what I mean? Real basic yeah. stuff. And then I came in and I was using things that I made as far as corrective techniques and things. And um, you, you made, so, so like pieces of equipment? equipment? Or, or you mean the way you No, way just like it. corrective techniques. And I just would go and right. work with people and say, all right, this is an issue. I'm not going to talk. Here's what we're going to do. Boom, boom, boom. And like just yeah. immediate improvements for everybody. And, um, the, um, and then, and, and that was really it, you know, and I was just there as a spotter and to teach some positional correction. And, um, then, you know, somehow this turns into like this weird, like situation. And, um, and he'd called Daniel and Daniel was like, no, that's, I put this on, like, He's like, no, Josh put you up to it. And like, uh, no, I just asked him to come in because he's in Atlanta, I'm in Atlanta, and he's a friend of mine, so I wanted him to be there. And, um, you know, that, that, and that was just, and, and nothing ever came of it because, like, you can't, like, one, I never had any contract with him to not teach anything. And two, we're not using, we're not, passing off any copyrighted material as our own so you really have no basis like you know but that was uh you know his just being very protective of what he perceived as being his space and um i don't agree with a lot of the ways that he went about that but i can understand why uh he did it especially as you know we've started lab coat and um You know, it's given me perspective. I don't think he did things the right way. And I think, you know, some of those things were exceptionally out of line. But none of that takes away from the fact that I learned a lot of valuable stuff from him in terms of, uh, you know, how to work with young athletes and just in general that you could be a firm coach without being an a-hole. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I also learned that um, it's, it's possible you know, people change when money becomes involved and that... Um, being a great coach doesn't necessarily mean you're a great community leader. And as the the community changed, you know, a lot of people lost their home. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. I felt like I lost yeah. a home. And yeah. uh, that was... I've, I've seen that before as well with, with, um, with tricks. Uh, tr- there was like a few tricking forums as well. Uh, same, a similar thing when the forums were shut down. It's kind of like, where do we go? Where do we congregate? Yeah, it was terrible. And, uh, so, and then we waited for years. Part of it was depression. Part of it was just not, uh, you know, I was scared of getting like lawsuits. I couldn't handle it. I was in med school. My mom had just died. 
Um, there was just a lot going on. <sighs> you know, yeah, she was stressed out and she was taking a walk and somehow, I don't know, she gets tripped on something, fell through a rail, hit her head and drowned. So it was just like out of nowhere. It was like a week after I got accepted into med school. And then like, you know, like a month and a half later, I'm moving to a different part of the state and I'm, none of my friends are there. You know, my girlfriend's like, you know, still in Atlanta and blah, blah, blah. And um, it, it was a lot, you know, and during all this, I was in periodic contact with Yad. So Yad and I first mm. met on the GB forums and he was this kid kind of came from nowhere, very enthusiastic, really respectful and just kind of did what he wanted. And um, it, uh, you know, and as I described this, like I have an immense amount of respect for Yad, more, th more than I know, more than, uh, I don't know if I'll properly like put this into terms because he's one of the few people that I've ever run into who has genuinely put uh, his effort where his mouth is, if that makes sense. Like, a lot of people say a lot of things. He's just a good person, and he just wants to do well, and he wants to be better tomorrow than he is today. And so, um, you know, after a couple of years of spinning wheels and, like, writing multiple pages of, like, detailed instructions and, like, here's what's going on, here's what I can see... I think that this is where this is why you're getting hurt and you know so on and so on and so on he i just got tired of it and so we just stopped and he sent me a message a couple of years ago and he's just like um listen i think i was in my second year of med school so i guess it'd be 2015 2016 and he just wanted to finally just do do what i said he's like look i get it you know i've just been cherry picking and like i can see that it's just not working and I'm tired of getting hurt and I'm afraid that I'm just not going to be able to do anything more than I am if I, if I don't just change. So I, I will do whatever you say. And, you know, it's like, honestly, like, I don't know that I have the energy to do this again. So if we do it, there's no more, there's no more chances. Like, it's not cause I don't like you. You're a good kid. It's just, it's emotionally exhausting for me. And I put a lot of time in and it's just difficult to like, I just can't keep doing it. And, um, and, and he just, you know, stuck with it. And the, the rest is kind of history. I started teaching him more and then he, he had decided he was going to apply to med school. And I was very supportive of that and said, you know, you're going to learn a lot. It's going to be great. And, um, you know, so we're just kind of giving him resources to like learn and study. And like, we we're talking, we spent a lot of time on video doing like little corrections we changed his plan form completely and um you know and, and the reasons that we did that is like okay well here's the thing here's why you're hurting in the places that you're hurting here's what i see and these are the habits you have and we have to get rid of those and just like we have to talk about the basics of why these positions work you know like with plange your center of mass has to be over your it can't be in front of your fingers and it cannot be behind the palm heel that's it you just draw a box mm -hmm. around your hands that's where your center of mass has to be, inside that box. That's it. That's all that it is. And then we want to try and minimize the wrist stress, which means that we need to find the hand positions that are comfortable. We need to put the weight in a certain place on your hand. And that doesn't mean the rest of your hand is limp. It just means that with physics, we want to, we want to make this as easy as we can, you know? And yeah. to do that, we need to change your shoulder position because you're doing this thing and based on your symptoms, this is what's happening. So let's just 
it's going to feel weird for the first few weeks. But then he like started making all these gains and he got so excited. He did more than I asked him to. And he's in, in like everybody else, uh, it's very hard to accurately judge your calories when you're not actually counting them. And so he didn't gain as much mass as he should have uh, if everything was perfect. But he was really sticking. He, he never did less than I asked. The, the problem is that at the time I wasn't like focused enough on saying, do not do more than the program calls for. We got there as we went through injuries. You know, because he'd be like, oh, I'm such a beast. I just did a plunge, man. I'm not even like, I don't understand how, why am I doing a full plunge? Like I haven't even practiced that. I'm like, yeah, but I told you this was going to happen. And you're going to have a Victorian. Like I'm telling you, this is going to happen. It's just, we got to take our time and build the structure. And there's certain areas we need to build a little muscle mass and certain areas where we just need to change the way you use it. And from that, um, lab coat was born. And he had a few mm. friends that he ran into, Olaf and Sebastian and Boss and a few of the other guys. And he started, and he wanted to start training them. And I was like, I think it's a good idea. You're going to learn more from training other people and you're going to understand more about where I'm coming from than you'll ever get just from talking to me. So I think you got to do this. And then, we, and then we brought up Lab Coat a couple of years ago. And then right before residency, um, you know, Cole wanted to be involved. And um, I knew Cole from back in the day. I actually stayed at his place. Uh, I gave a seminar on fitness and nutrition out in Finland. And, um, you know, that's, that's really where Lab Coat came from. And it wouldn't be there without those two guys. There's no way I could do it on mm. my own. Listen, I can't do organized stuff on my own. I have to have people keep me in line. I have to have people... You know, I, if, if we work out a structure in advance, I can stick to it and do well there. And so, like, I'm the thinker. I understand the body. And I had them go to the right trainings. They go to the, um, you know, we had them go to, uh, like, a Renaissance Periodization Summit and learn from Mike Isratel and James Hoffman and them. And um, they loved it. And it was really eye-opening. And uh, it expanded their abilities immensely because you have to... You have to be around the best if you want to grow. And not just the mm. people who say that they're the best, the people who are just doing better than everybody else. And it's hard to identify that sometimes. And that's one of our other goals is to make sure people know what the good sources are, you know, and it depends on what you want to do. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of like the journey is it was this, you know, People were asking for years, oh, is Nader going to do his own thing? And I was like, yeah, man, we're going to do it. And um, I just, uh, my mental health wasn't in a spot where I could even think about actually making it happen. And then with Cole and yeah. Yad, we were able to do it largely because of them, you know. And, yeah. um, and, and it remains that way, is that uh, without those guys, it would fall apart. And the, the, the goal is to build it into something that is you know, profitable enough to where we can continue to attract talent that is genuinely good for the community so that it's less about who's leading it and more about how we do things and to be sure that people will always have a place that is dedicated to, you know, their advancement in the areas they want, you know, and con and yeah. connect and yeah. connecting them. We're not going to be the best at all things everywhere. You can't. Even, even if we technically could, uh, you find that you become known for certain things and it's worth specializing and you send people 
like for bodybuilding, could I get the results that Israel gets? Probably, but I'd rather just send people to Renaissance periodization for bodybuilding training if they're trying to be competitive because the it's so different from you know what we do at a competitive level that it would be a disproportionate amount of time taken away from everything else we do. Yeah, yeah. we just don't have the infrastructure for it right now, and you know. Yeah. It's like, I want you to send, I want to send you, because there's more to it than just like the off season, right? There's so much and you need, you yeah. need to be connected with competitive bodybuilders is what you need that are doing well. People who are helping people win competitions and that's what those guys are doing. Or like Eric Helms and 3D Muscle Journey, you know, th those are the two places. And then like, if you're trying to lose weight, whatever, recomp, like Renaissance Diet App is great. And Carbon Diet app seems like it's really good. I haven't used that one, but that's like Lane Norton's. Um, and uh, okay. I forget his uh, wife's name, Holly something. Um, but they they do a great job, you know. And if you, it's it's just you have to you have to be willing to you know to not try and be everything to everybody and to focus on the things that you're good at and to offer appropriate services, you know, and that's really like where our, where our plan is, is that like, are we going to have these things? Absolutely. But you know, it's, it's about one step at a time. And right now we're working on updating the website so that, um, the next steps are able to be integrated. We have some software solutions to expand what we can do. And, um, that's, you know, we're real excited about that, but it, it takes time. It takes a long time to test these things. And, um, you know, the people who are testing it are getting like absurdly good results. And um, the the end user experience is really more where the uh, the work is being done at this point. We, right. And, and it's really like with the exercise, it just comes down to, you know, you just, um, you just need to understand. Like, I think that Mike Isretel's concepts, uh, because they are, he's the first person who really created a functional vocabulary for understanding training stress. So there's like, you have your, whatever your minimum maintenance volume is, which is like almost nothing. It's just all that you need to, the volume that you need to keep your current mass for, or whatever ability, whatever parameter that you're looking to maintain and not lose anything in over a certain period of time that's the minimum maintenance volume. There's no gains that come from that. And anything more than that is gonna be essentially your minimum effective volume. So like the, the, the smallest workout volume that gives you a measurable gain over a period of time. So like, you know, let's say like over four months, it, or like over like four weeks or something, if uh, what, what volume would it take to see a slight improvement? Maybe the bar moves a little bit faster with the same weight, right? Maybe you get like mm -hmm. an extra rep, whatever. And that's, that's almost nothing. And um, Philip Chubb and Martina operate closer to the minimum effective volume range of the spectrum, which I think is very appropriate for yeah. a lot of people because it's kind of like, you know, he said, like, was he bigger before? Yes. Was he stronger before? Yes. Did his life revolve around training at that time? Yes. You can't be half-ass if you're going to conquer the world. And if you want to have a lot of different interests and enjoy those different things, you cannot just live for training. There, you know, 
something gets traded off as you become more specialized or more dedicated and focused. And if you aspire to setting a world record, then in a lot of ways, your life has to revolve around that. Be yeah. And I know you know that better than a lot of people, hmm. you know, and it's there, there's, um, and it depends on what you're trying to do. And the, the more, the more you're pushing, the more like certain things have to be put aside. Like, um, you know, if you're trying to set a, like Yad would like to set a world record for the front lever at some point, I'm not sure what form yeah. that will take. But that's something that matters to him. And, yeah. you know, so and, and, and we know like right now he's he's just doing his general training and he's still making gains in that area. I think he's got like a 50 second hold or something stupid. It's ridiculous. And yeah, um, something crazy. yeah, and he's just not even he's not even focusing. But in order to set that record, his Victorian training is going to have to stop for a while. And, his, you know what I mean? Like all of his pulls are going to have to be focused very specifically on what he needs to set that front lever record. And his pushes are gonna to have to go to minimum maintenance. Everything's gonna to have to go to minimum maintenance in order to make space for that front lever record. And, mm. you know, that's that's not real life for everybody. That's, that's not even real life for him right now. Hmm. But it will be at some point when he when he feels that he is at the point where he wants to go for it, and um, you know what we what we do is we want to help people figure out how to one how to recognize the basics. Like you you have to recognize that if you're if you're doing as much as you can possibly recover from, then you're actually past the ideal point in training. You know, and that's the problem with the way people think. Like you hear, oh, well, more volume's better. And so people just do too much. They don't understand that. So to put this in perspective, generally speaking, you don't want to be advancing more than three to 5% in any one parameter per week. And that's a lot. That's obviously not sustainable long-term. But, yeah. but for like four to eight weeks in certain areas, that's possible. So like if you're going to do that for strength, you'd better start off at like 60 to 70% of your one rep max. You can't add 3% a week for, you know, 10 weeks if you're starting at 80%. It's not going to work. Yeah. Right? So um or like with volume, you know, if you can do 100 push-ups, you'd better start off at like 60. You can't start at 100 mm. and think that you're going to add 3 reps a week. You're just going to get hurt. Yeah. Right? So it's about understanding where you need to start, how to build up, and how that allows you to move into a, a sort of an optimal response period. And you also have to go past that at least once to know what it feels like. Um, so like most people try to hit the optimum zone. They never try to learn what's the minimum they need and what's the maximum they can handle because you really don't want to be too close to either one of those. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like in one of the biggest things in staying safe is auto regulation because your body, we all have, our bodies are this complex network of sensors. And if you learn how, and not everybody's super good at listening to that either, but you can learn to a pretty good degree. Some people just get it. And some people really need like special ed classes in it. And, and it's cool. It doesn't matter which one you are, or whether you're just like a normal person who can kind of like pick it up, you know, over the course of a couple of months. 
Um, but if you learn, like if I say two reps in reserve, that's supposed to be two reps from failure. So if you don't know what you feel like when you fail, how can you know what you were like two reps before that? You, you yeah. can't. And most people fail when they get uncomfortable, not when they truly can't do it. They've never been pushed to really discover what am I willing, to, what am I able to do if I'm being goaded the right way? If I'm being pushed by somebody that I don't want to look like a, you know, a weakling in front of. And it's, there's usually a few extra reps in there. And the, um, and, and that's an important thing to understand because I don't think that's appropriate for beginners, but I think that by the time that you've got, you know, six months to a year under your belt, learning what your failure points are in a safe way is really important for your long-term progress because that's where you're really going to learn what a two reps in reserve feels like. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, I think that's so important, having that um, understanding of your body, but it also doesn't come unless you have got the experience. You know, you can't expect a beginner to know that when they're two reps before failure is, or even when failure is. They right. need to kind of do that self-exploration first. Right. And like, so for us, we started off, our first demographic is really people who are already fairly accomplished, but are stuck. They, whether it's by injury or because they just couldn't get you know any more progress no matter what they tried and they've all yeah. broken through those barriers every single one of them mm. we don't really have injuries um there's which is you know i'd like to say that it's luck but it's really not um do you do you, do you find, find there's like, like a, a like an explaining that has to take place to these athletes sometimes that, um is, is, is encouraging patience yeah is there a lot of patience involved that needs to be kind of taught and they need to be given that confidence to trust in yes they're kind of uh what's the word like a time when they feel they should be progressing or pushing through yeah but the program is kind of like pull back on the reins here or kind of coast or stay where you are yeah the way that i the way the the message that we really encourage is that you are always allowed to do less than what is written if it feels like too much to do what's on the program for today you're always allowed to pull back a little bit if you need to you are never ever allowed to do more than what is written and that really throws people for a loop at first my explanation and this seems to work with people pretty well because it's true is that here's the thing if you're getting stronger and you're doing this work and you feel so good the plan's working bro mm. it's working so well don't screw it up <laughs> Right? Like you should be happy about that. When you when you go in and you're like, Wow, I, I feel good. I, I because there's always some kind of progression built in, right? And mm -hmm. if you feel good with that and you're not beaten down, you're in a good place. You're making progress without getting worn down. And that's the ideal place to be. You can't stay there forever because we don't have like the third person menu bar where we can see our fatigue level or where we can see our hit points or, you know, like MP or whatever. So yeah. we, we depend on that sort of uh, self-feedback 
of, oh, I'm starting to, because there's the feeling of fatigue and then there's fatigue on paper. Like if you feel tired, but you just accomplished everything that was written and you felt like you still had some stuff in the tank, then, you know, and you only have like, you know, if that's in like week two of a six week program, that's a problem. But if that's on week five of a six week program, you're right on point. Do you find, how much do you find that it's a balancing act between doing too much and not doing enough? Do you feel like you've been at it long enough that it's pretty textbook when creating a program? Or do you find it's still person to person quite a balancing act to make sure they don't do too much and then to make sure they're not, they're doing enough to still progress? Well, the same, the, the everybody's personalized program is going to look different a little bit but the process is exactly the same there is no difference at all in the general approach and that's and that's because we all have the same genetic systems now we don't all respond at the same rate and we don't all have the same inflammatory regulation we weren't all born with the same stem cell pool blah 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 you can't measure those things You'll find out as you go, but you still respond to mechanical force. You still need food to grow and you need protein to build protein related structures, especially essential amino acids because your body can't make them. You still need carbs for high power activity because there is a limit on ATP production with fat only. It's like a third of the power output that can be produced with sugar. So if you want, there are certain basic things that do not change. And knowing that and understanding the fundamentals, and this is where like the combination of med school and exercise science and just the way that my mind works. Because when I look at people, you know, I see two things. I see like that abstract existence that we call a person, but I also see a bag of chemicals and mechanical parts. And to yeah, me, yeah. everything's <laughs> happening at the same time. And it's kind of weird, but, um, and it makes communication difficult sometimes. Like I have to pre-plan how I explain some of these things, but we have the same enzymes. We may have slightly different versions, but the function is the same. And understanding the variation lets us understand, oh, well, maybe we should just start off with one set and then we'll find out where you feel good. We'll find out what's too much and we'll stay away from what's too much. But if you know what's too much, then you always know where to limit your programming. And that's the same for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you feel about people that would go in and like one rent max to see where I think it's exceptionally (laughs) foolish. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're you're doing the opposite. Yeah, I mean like, you know, you have to realize that even power lifters, they rarely do a true max because they, you know, all professional athletes like understand that they've only got a few peak performances a year in them and you don't want to waste that. And it also doesn't really help you because you're not maxing. So the only time you're maxing is competition day, right? Hmm. So you have to prepare your body for that day and you have to prepare your mind for that day. But that's different than trying to duplicate that day over and over. The stress is too much. I mean, it, that wears you down and they'll all tell you the yeah. same thing. You know, um, 
there's and, and I think this the same thing kind of applies with performance measurement. You're what you want to do is you want to say, all right, well, let's say I'm going to work in the six to ten rep range. Guess what? You should use something in that rep range as a rep max. That's what you should test. You should pick a weight that you know you can do or a variation, you name it, that you can do at least, you know, you're confident 100% that you can do six times and you're not 100% sure you can do 10 times. And you just use that Mm. and just push to failure on that for one set when you're well rested. That's going to tell you the most you should ever do. And from there, you Mm. work your reps in reserve. And that is... um, that's the easiest way to do it. So like if we're, if we're starting a, a cycle that's based on a 10 to 15 rep um, range, then you know I want people to do a 13 to 15 rep max. And from there, that's gonna be where they start, you know, in terms of the progression or the weight on the bar, depending on what they're using for the exercise. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and we just do that for all the areas because you have to have a benchmark. You have to know where you're at so that you can use an effective volume per set, you know, use an effective resistance as well. And um, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what, what, what's what in it when it comes to uh, programming and when it comes to getting results, especially for relative strength which is really of, of supreme importance to um, really more people than you think. Unless you are in an open weight class, relative strength matters. So like it matters for gymnastics, it matters for almost every power lifter on the planet. The only people it doesn't matter for are heavyweights. Yeah. You know? So yeah. same thing with wrestlers and everything else. If you're not a heavyweight, relative strength is the name of the game. And... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a really good perspective to put it in from performance. And with um, in, in terms of what that means, a bigger muscle is always a stronger muscle, always. And that comes from something we call physiologic cross-section area. So there's a difference between cross-sectional area and physiological cross-sectional area. Cross-sectional area is like, let's say you take the pec and you just cut across it at a 90-degree plane. Um, and you and you measure how like wide that is, how much area that takes up. That's your cross-sectional area. But the pectoral muscle yeah, yeah. actually is not not all the fibers point in the same direction. So you're actually misjudging some of that area. You have to go essentially 90 degrees to the contractile components, and that's different. So like in the vastus medialis for example, is a great example. It's what we call a pinnated muscle. The medial deltoids are a group of like five to seven heads of um, like bipinnate muscles, actually. So what it means is that um, you have, if you're, okay, if you look at a braided rope, right? Yeah. And you just cut it at 90 degrees to the rope. You might think, oh, this is an inch wide rope. But really what you need to do is you need to cut it each of those individual uh, fibers at 90 degrees and measure that area instead. And you see that you actually have a good bit more area than you think you do. And so, for example, like with the uh, quadricep muscles and the uh, the thigh, 
they're very different than the bicep. The bicep, all the muscles, all the muscle fibers pretty much run parallel to each other and they go together from the origin to the insertion, right? So the direction of force is also the direction of the fiber. So it's a very efficient design, but it's very space limited. And it's it creates a longer contractile um, component, which is better suited for speed. Same thing with the hamstrings. Um, however, with the uh, and that's just a whole length tension thing, and that's that gets into shit that's not worth talking about right now because we don't have the visual aids, and it, you need a certain uh, a little bit of background to really make sense of that. But the 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 idea is that um, you know if you move a ten foot rope two feet, you've shortened it by twenty percent. If you move a five foot rope two feet, you've done the exact same movement, but you've shortened it by forty percent. And when you look at the essentially length tension relationship of individual muscle fibers, you understand that that has a huge impact on active force development. So, and the longer something is under constant acceleration, the faster it goes, right? So the longer you can apply force, the faster you can make something move, the more power you can put into it. And so a longer muscle has the ability to apply force for a longer period of time. So the, it's better suited for speed and, and for like power in terms of a, making a smaller object move faster. However, space is an issue. So like when the bicep, you cut it and say you have like a two inch circle and that's six point whatever, because it's like, you know, diameter times pi for the area. So um, that's the area of contractile tissue that you have. However, the VMO may look <clears throat> like it's the same thickness as the bicep, right? But those fibers are running at like 45 degrees. So you have to actually cut that muscle at a 45 degree angle. Like you have to, so it's actually like four times thicker than the bicep, okay? So it doesn't have as long of a range of motion in its high power area, but it's got four times the power. So it's got a very rapid, it's got a short, it's got a short area of max power, but it has four times the contractile fibers or more. So it's four times stronger. Okay. So it's the, these muscles are built for different things based on what they have to do. And it's, it's an incredible thing and understanding that, you know, really clears some things up, but that's more of a technical thing, but understanding that physiologic cross-sectional area is looking at cutting a muscle 90 degrees from its, um, from its, uh, the direction that it contracts in because the quads don't contract straight up from the knee to the hip. They go off to the side in each direction, right? The VMO pulls out, uh, or sorry, the VMO pulls like the knee in towards the middle and the vastus lateralis pulls it out to the outside and if you look at diagrams of these muscles you'll see what i'm saying is that you know if you just hold them like a fish if you just cut them off it's a long tubular muscle right but those fibers don't run the length of the muscle they cut crosswise through it so that's the that's the that's the difference so as that cross section as the physiologic cross-sectional area increases you have more contractile units in parallel. So instead of four people pulling a truck, you have 10 people pulling a truck. And that's that's one of the things that changes as you get 
bigger is that you have more parallel myofibrils. You have more contractile tissue next to each other in each muscle belly. So the pores potential is much higher. Your nervous system is the biggest part in whether or not you can access all of that force. So right. does that make so sense? Is that coming in to, yeah, it, is that now going to come into the question of if a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle, then why aren't bodybuilders the strongest on like walking around? Because they've got bigger muscles than powerlifters. Sometimes. Gymnasts. They look like and, they do, but you don't realize how, like, so those heavyweight powerlifters, you just don't realize how huge their shoulders are, how huge their chest is. It's just that they're not ripped because that doesn't make them the best at their sport, you know? But if you look at a power lifter in like the 150 pound weight class and you look at bodybuilders in the 150 pound weight class, they look, I mean, they're, they're all really big. Yeah. And then, but were you about to go into the nervous system? Yeah. Recruitment? Cause that's where it kind that's of, where all those sensors come into play. You know, it's like, um, yeah. You have, you have tension sensors in your tendons. You have speed sensors and length sensors in the muscle bellies. Uh, we have names for them. And you have position sensors in your joints. And you have this interpretation center in your brain that we call the motor cortex and the premotor cortex. And, and that's wired into other areas. But your body is built around what you currently do. It's used to the things that you do. And just because it can do something, if it's not used to it, then it freaks out at first. It causes a disproportionate response because it has not learned to fine tune its response to this extreme new uh, stimulus. So like, hmm. if I gave you <clears throat> an epidural injection at like say l3 right it's like if you were going to give birth to a child or something so i just completely disrupt all communication with your legs uh then you'd be able to do splits these experiments have been done you could just lean forward onto your thighs no flexibility limitations and you would not wake up sore because it's purely passive when you take the nervous system out, you have to realize that muscles generally have a resting sarcomere length. Every muscle is different, but somewhere between like uh, 25 to 30% of its maximum length. So every muscle can more than double in length easily from a purely physical perspective. Yeah. Okay. That never happens. We, we don't do that. Like our bodies, the joints are not, they, they don't. There's no range of motion that really allows that to happen, even if you have the most flexible body in the world. So what that means is that we're never really running into the limitations of the microanatomy of the muscle fibers themselves. Okay. So what are we running into? Something's happening. Everybody knows that when they try to stretch, it just kind of like stops at a certain point. Why is that? And what happens is that our bodies are survival machines and anything that's too unfamiliar is a threat. You have to start from that standpoint because that is a basic truth. 
you know, no matter how pleasant it may be, like if the most beautiful woman in the world came up and was just like really hardcore hitting on you, you know, that's not something that happens to us. And it freaks everybody out at first, you know, and whether you adjust quickly or whether you just run off, you know, because you're like getting these danger signals that are saying, man, something's wrong here. I don't know what it is, but it's weird. I got to go. And, um, you know, or if it's the hottest guy or whatever, I don't care. It's so far outside of the experience that that is, it causes you to freeze up. And if it happened again and again and again for weeks and months, eventually it would stop freaking you out and you'd be like, what's up? And that's the same thing that happens with all the neuromuscular reflexes is that with repeated exposure, your body changes its response. It stops freaking out so much. And that happens at the spinal loop level. It happens at the, like in the upper motor neurons, there's multiple levels at which this happens. And, and those details are a lot less important than understanding that it's just getting used to something new. And as it gets used to something mm. new and it says, oh, I can, I can bend over this far and I'm not getting hurt, I can allow a little bit more motion. And you do that again and again and again and again and again, and you achieve the range of motion you want, or you run into anatomical limitations in the joints, one mm. or the other, right? And, and yeah. that's all there is to stretching. That's all there is to motion. And just like, uh, I don't know if I ever got a response, like every now and again, I can't help myself, uh, but responding to certain things. And, um, like one of them was like squat university you know, on Instagram, who I have a great deal of respect for had this post about like stretching for the front rack in a front squat. And that's just not necessary. It's complete garbage. Um, not because people, so what was it stretching in the rack? All right, let me ask you a question. Can you lift your arm in front of you to 90 degrees? Just, Just my arm out in front. Straight. Yeah. Yep. Can you do a bicep curl there? Yep. Okay. Congratulations. You can do a front rack. Do you, do you need to stretch to do that? <laughs> no. All right, cool. Now turn, turn around and do like a reverse curl so that your knuckles are, you know, pointing at your, um, at your shoulder. You're going to get pretty close. Your biceps are going to get in the way because you're flexing them, right? But you're fairly close. Now relax that bicep and just push on the wrist a little bit. You can make your yep. knuckles touch, right? Your arm's not falling down, is it? No. Yeah. How about that? Did you need a stretch? You did not. No. So flexibility. Flex that. That's the front rack position. Flexibility is not a problem unless you have a shoulder injury. Or something like, I mean, if you have weird anatomy, like where you fractured the shoulder before and there's weird scar tissue or there's arthritis and things like that, then you have pain limitations and that's okay. But that's not normal people. Nobody has a limitation inherently caused by muscle flexibility in that range of motion. What they do have is an unfamiliarity with the position. Every single time we're in that position, we're doing a row or a pull up, right? Mm. That yeah. pulls your arm down. So every time that you experience force in that position by default, your body says lats contract. It's a communication yeah. issue. Yeah. Okay. That's all that it is. 
And so I can fix that in one minute. I put you there. You get under the bar. I don't care where your shoulders are at. I don't care where your hands are at. Get comfortable. I don't care if your elbows are the right height. All I'm going to do is touch your elbows and tell you to push my finger. And you'll be able to. It's going to be like magic. It's going to be weird. If I don't touch your elbow, if I hold my finger a half inch from it, you'll never be able to do it. I mean, some people will. People who lift there anyway will be able to do it no problem. But a new person trying to learn a front squat, they'll get frustrated. And that's why the, you know, in my, and when people are like that and I can't be there, you know what I do? I say, I'm, I want you to put a bar. You're going to grab two barbells or a stick and a barbell. I don't care what you use. You're just going to strap, you're going to put that on at like just a little bit below shoulder level. And you're going to strap it down or put enough weight to where you can't push it off. That's going to be what you touch with your elbows. And then you're going to have like whatever weight is comfortable for you for a real easy squat. Like real easy. We're not trying to squat yet. We're just teaching you how to do a front rack. And then you're going to stand in front of that bar in a crappy front rack with your elbows low. Whatever you can do. And you're just going to move forward until your forearms gently touch that bar. And you're going to push in against that bar and then slowly squat down. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to lift yourself up into a perfect front rack. You didn't need me there. You didn't need to do a stretch. What you had to do is learn through touch how to move in that position because it's new for you. You've Mm. never done that before. You're asking your body to do something so far outside its experience that on its own it freaks out. But after a week or two of practice, you don't need that bar anymore. You can, you'll be able to do that front rack on your own. You taught yourself a new motion. There was never, mm. there was never a flexibility issue. It, it comes down, down to just training, training the, it's, it's almost like a, a it's a mind training thing more than it is a physiological thing. Yeah. And, and that those, and that's where flexibility training is like horribly misunderstood. Um, and it's why a lot of people put too much effort in and, um, there, there are, but it's, you have to recognize that you're not stretching like taffy, you know, you're not trying to stretch a rubber band. What you're trying to do yeah. is convince your body to let the muscle lengthen. That's all you want. Cause it, this, this is, is why, why with, with mobility, mobility training, people say, oh, like if you invest the time, then you kind of can just switch to maintenance mode from that. Absolutely. It's essentially you're, you're getting your body to a point where you're going, I'm not scared anymore. Right. And that's it. Yes. No, that's, that's exactly <laughs> so right. you can maintain it because you're not scared anymore. Right. That, no, that's 100% correct. And, the, you know, there's, there's deeper things. Like, let's say, you know, if you're trying to bend over and touch your toes, and usually it's easy, but you just did a bunch of deadlifts. Well, you're, those muscles just got inflamed. They may be 20% bigger than they usually are. And what that means is that you hit that same stretch point earlier. And you may have some yeah. different stretching. You may have like sideways stretching on the fascia, which is loaded with stretch receptors that um, you're just not experiencing in a normal position, you know, when you're not inflamed. So you just run into that, whoa, hang on point earlier. And if you try and push past it, then, you know, when you're strong, your quads are always stronger than your hamstrings. You'll be able to tear your own hamstrings if you want to. You know, and so you just have to understand. Don't say that, man. I'm just about to start some sprinting. <laughs> That's like one of my fears is um, tearing my hamstring while sprinting. Yeah, well, and especially how old are you now? 30. Yeah, so I can tell you from experience 
that there's a uh, and it's just physiology, but like it doesn't make sense until you're already through it. Um, is that your body is not the same after like the late twenties, and it's it continues to change slowly. And the biggest difference is that it takes longer to prepare, and you can't recover from quite as much high intensity work. And so you've just yeah. and and um, the the tissue, especially if it's not used to doing things uh, with like high power under high forces, essentially, it slowly becomes a little bit more uh, susceptible to damage. Now that can be reversed with training to a large degree, but um, mm. you know you just have to be aware that you know just because you could go out and do things when you were twenty doesn't mean it's going to work the same way. And the best way to avoid it's it. Such a hard lesson to learn. It sucks, man. That's life. You know, it's the reason that there is a maximum age to conquering the world in any sport. And, yeah. you know, it just is what it is. And uh, it doesn't yeah. mean you can't be great. And it doesn't mean you can't set new personal records. It just it just means that, you know, you have to be smarter about approaching things. And it's, it just, it comes all, it really comes down to being methodical and not doing more than a good program asks for and as long as you do that yeah. you won't get hurt you know you just have to start you have to build your tolerance for a start especially out of blocks because if you're using sprinting blocks you are doing something totally different than a standing start i've never used sprinting, sprinting blocks <laughs> and, and i'm just saying like you know and if you're doing standing start it's like you you really you need to learn slowly like you don't want to sort of dip down too much to get a uh, stretch reflex i mean it's going to happen a little bit but a lot of people over exaggerate things and so what you want to do is really just slow motion practice the start until it feels easy and then you slowly add a little bit more speed and power without changing how it feels and what you're doing is you're just sort of adding power to efficiency without sacrificing the efficiency and over time, you let your body learn. And the same thing happens with like the amount of acceleration that you put on is that you got to let your body get used to that. You're causing a lot of stress. The faster you move, the fewer muscle fibers you use. And that means that there's more stress per muscle fiber. And that means that you're going to have more damage which means that you have to respect the fact that you're you're doing a little bit more than you think you are early on. You have to let your body adapt to it. You know, like it'll take a couple of months yeah. for it to be safe for you to really try and do a speed trial. In my opinion, hmm. I was at, at, are you talking like running the hundred or running the two hundred? Trying to set your record. Yeah, because usually you get hurt in the start. You get hurt in the first 10, 20 meters, and um, yeah. You know, after that, you're pretty much at max speed. The acceleration is much lower. At that point, you're less likely to get hurt. But, um, you know, the you have to let your body kind of get used to that. And um, it's a lot of fun. You know what's funny is um, probably was going to go and do a speed test tomorrow for, um, <laughs> for the 60 and the 200. Here's what you should do. Maybe the 800. Here's what you should do. But this conversation's making me think different. Don't do it from a dead start. Because do what they call a flying 60. As long as you standardize it, you'll always mm. be able to measure progress. So if you know 
that I take two seconds to, you know, sort of get to about half speed. And then, uh, like, what you want to do is you'd want to start, like, 30, 40 meters back. And, you know, you just, or maybe, like, 20 meters, whatever. You want to just start at a jog, just, like, easily get up to about half speed. And then when you when your foot hits, like, that start line or whatever, that's where you accelerate from. And so you're still timing the 60 meters. But mm. you want to make sure that you're not starting from a dead stop. That's where the injuries happen. So, so as mm. long as you separate that out, you're still going to have... A flying 60 to compare from the most important thing is that you just have you find a way to standardize um that that lead-in does that make sense yeah 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 because yeah, that's, that's what i was, I was doing in one of my first training sessions for it was none of it was like dead start i was jogging into it and slowly and that was just uh, that's the right way to do that it. was almost a, an innate response to the exercise like it, it just, uh, I don't even think I thought, thought about it. It just seemed natural to do it from a little bit of a jog and build up to it. Yeah, no, that's um, that's correct. Because, yeah, just the, the, the whole thing about sprinting is what gets me is that obviously if I'm doing the training, there's going to be things where it's like an 80%, 60% or whatever. Right. But to me, sprinting is 100%, if you get what I mean. So it's almost like yeah. every workout, it's a max. Uh-uh. And that's where I think the injuries can come in because people don't realize that even though it's sprinting they need to be still in their mind working in these 75 percent 95 percent like what range are we working and as you've been talking right like building up to those more max and they don't realize that so the way that power training goes is that um everything so you know sprinting uh throwing all these things are really expressions of power and when you are expressing power, it's very velocity. Gains and losses are very velocity specific. And so the um, and there's more and more research coming out on this. But this is something that you know, practically speaking, has been known for years. It's been seen. This is why, like high level Olympic lifters, once they're like on the world stage, they don't really like do. They don't try to keep working on super heavy. Um, uh, shoulder presses because it actually slows down the jerk. Mm. Right, so they'll do some lockouts and they'll still shoulder press, but as they get closer to competition, that becomes less important, and they're not, and they're really focusing more on jerk form and the speed because the speed that sport is about getting under a bar. It's not about lifting the bar higher or squatting lower. It's about getting under a bar, and that's it's yeah. a very important difference because like people think they have to you know squat ass to grass in order to. Uh, you know, like have a good clean and jerk. And that's not true. You know, what you got to do is get under the bar and stand back up. And Mm. the bar will always 100% get as high as your standing hold. So if you stand up in your squatting shoes, in your lifting shoes, and you hold that bar at at a neutral shoulder position and just mark the bar, that bar will always, 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 always 100% of the time go at least that high it'll usually go a couple of inches higher but you start there and then you just rack the bar there or tie a stick to the rack and see how deep you have to squat in order to get your shoulders under that bar that's the deepest you should ever try to squat and usually it's very close to parallel Mm. and that people don't know that it's not taught that way but you just have to step away and look at mechanics and as you look at that 
you can avoid an awful lot of injuries by just approaching it rationally from an anatomical perspective and saying, all right, where, you know, let me use the quadruped hip assessment to figure out how my hips move. And then, because you may have deep hips, they may be pointed down, they may be pointed forward, who knows? Just figure out mm. where you can get the best comfortable squat range of motion and then go and get under that bar. Set that bar at the catch position and figure out, you know, do I, do I, maybe this is where I have the most mobility, but maybe I'm actually a little bit stronger with a slightly different stance. If you are, guess what? You should be learning how to catch in that slightly stronger stance. All you need to do is get under the mm -hmm. bar. You don't need to set a record for how low your butt gets. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not recorded. Yeah, yeah. So that, <laughs> and it's the same thing with like, um, you know, power stuff is that when you're trying to go fast, that's a very, very, very coordinated set of motor instructions. And it's very different. The recruitment pattern's different than the same thing done in slow motion. And we know that from EMG studies of like low and high speed pitching form and things like that. And the, the key is that if you, whatever your like comfortable, like whatever you're going to call like your training max, your current like, you know, whatever, your comfortable high power, you should never drop more than 5% from that. As soon as, and you can do that with math. You can say that, you know, if you are running 60 seconds in like, uh, I don't know, we'll say, let's say that it's uh, seven seconds, right? Which would be pretty, pretty decent. You'd probably be faster than that. But we say seven, seven times uh, 0.95. As soon as you drop below 6.65 seconds, you should stop training for the day. Mm. Or like, sorry, um, yeah, you know, yeah. like, so that, that was totally backwards. Everybody should know that. So if you get, it's like second, seven is your training max. And so I should be doing 1.05. So seven times one or seven, I guess seven divided by 0.95 would be the better thing. Seven, five, 0.95. Yeah. So as soon as you get, if your sprint gets to seven point like three, six seconds, training's over. If that happens, if that yeah. happens twice in a row, training's done for the day. Yeah. Right? Because it, if, if you start going slower than that, you're actually training your body to do something different. Yeah. And that's very important. So whatever, if you say like whatever your target time is today, it's like you say, I want to get, the goal is like whatever, eight reps of 10 seconds, right? And for, for sprinting time, for whatever distance that is, maybe it's like 80 meters. And as soon as that gets to where it's, you know, 10 and a half seconds, you got to stop because you're no longer getting anything out of that training. You're not getting power out of yeah. it. And that's what you need, right? You're making, you're, you're training something yeah. less efficient at that point. And that's mm. how all professional strength training works. It's on the clock and they have time targets and they know that, okay, well, this is the time we need to win. And that's going to be considered our max out. And they work all the percentages back from that. And, you know, they know typically each sprinter's, um, you know, personal best. And so, you know, you, you maybe guess that maybe you can shave that down by like 1% this year. So we're going to work everything based off of that. And all the percentages are worked backwards. And that's how they do it. It's not 
it's really not complicated. It's just that you have to be very specific and the rest times are very long. A lot of times they're close to 10 minutes, which is why they have uh, like warms, oh, yeah. you know, because, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, it takes like, so taxing. It, it, it really is. And like, you know, you, you look at research studies and you think, oh, well, like uh, five minutes is enough to recharge the creatine phosphate system. And it's like, well, I mean, that's true for untrained, you know, people or for like a single sprint and your first rest period might be five or six minutes. But after like four or five, it's, you know, you're dealing with other types of fatigue that are also building up and you have to, you know, respect that. And a lot of it's evidence-based too, is that we know what systems we're working with, but we don't know your body. So mm. let's take some time. Maybe, you know, the next month or two will be about figuring out what your best rest period is. I mean, when you're a competitive athlete, that's the kind of detail you get into because you're trying to be the best against very talented opponents who have sometimes very sophisticated training. And if you have equal talent, you know, which is what you hope for, that's the best case scenario, then, you know, the more dialed in your training is, the more likely you are to win by just a little bit. And hmm. the margins between, you know, first and fifth place are usually very small. So the, um, you know, it's important to be precise with power. And, you know, so if you have real numerical goals, just breaking it down like that is a really good idea. This has been a really interesting conversation. I know, it went in a totally man. different conversation. Um, so for people who don't know, Tyson wanted to ask me some stuff about like anabolics use. <laughs> Maybe we should do a separate... Um, well, yeah, I, I was thinking, man, like I was totally happy for it to go in the direction that it's gone because you have such interesting stories and so much valuable experience that it's nice to just listen to you talk and learn um, from your perspective on whatever you wanted to talk about. So I was totally happy with where we went today. Um, but I'd love to have you back on sometime and we could talk about, uh, some of the PEDs. Um, yeah. I think we kind of touched on like the sarcoplasmic myofibrillar. Hypertrophy, <laughs> very, very minimally like controversy. <laughs> yeah. I'll, it's, I think you guys will find it in there somewhere. I'll time code it. Yeah. <laughs> but in my head, I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to ask about that. Yeah, but then I didn't stop um, talking. No, it's, it's totally fine, man. Like, like I said, I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on everything you had to say. You're a really um, like a powerful person, not in the terms of like you're the governor of New York, but <laughs> as in you have a, a lot of experience and a lot of stuff to say. So it was, it was really rewarding to just listen to to all of that thanks um, and i apologize to the listeners yeah, for the ramble uh i hope it was you know not terrible no nah, it wasn't terrible man i'm sure that will get um something very valuable out of it but um until we meet next time man where is the best place for people to find you i'm assuming lab coat fitness yeah it's you know unfortunately residency has just been so burdensome that i haven't been very active um and that's that's tough that's a great question. I mean, like, uh, right now, you know, we haven't even begun any kind of advertising or big social media stuff. We're in the process of um, sort of implementing some of that stuff. So I would say uh, Lab Coat Fitness can be found on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. Yep. And the, I would, I would just, um, you know, follow it and that way you'll be notified when things start happening. And it's just hashtag, uh, lab coat fitness, you know, for the Twitter and that's our, um, 
uh, hashtag for a lot of the posts and stuff. If you follow that, then I think that you'll certainly see a lot of what our trainees are doing and you'll we will start putting out more content by the end of the year. I just don't it's kind of a long gap. I just don't know what to tell you. We're 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 in yep. process on a lot of things. Well, I'll put the links in the description and I'll make sure that when you guys do a year release, I'll put it out there whether it be through my Instagram um, on stories or something, sure. I'll, I'll blast it as well, so people get the word out there. Oh, we much but, appreciated. Yeah, I know, I know you. No, nah, no worries, man. I think you guys are doing a, a great thing for the community and giving people that are interested in getting into it a chance to learn the right way. Yeah, if that makes sense. Uh, that's so, that's um, the goal, and you know, our goal is to really um, get all the systems in place before we try and expand out to general population that's coming. And we just, we don't want, yeah. you know, when we start really trying to reach out to everybody, everybody, we, we want to have at least the kinks that we know of pretty well ironed out. You know, we want to set them up for success mm-hmm. and not have them be a part of, you know, the experiment that every business is when you first start off. Like, we know how the training works, that's the easy part, but the implementation with the technology and making it accessible and teaching in a way that's easy to receive, uh, you know, I think most of that's pretty on point at this point, but, you know, we just want to be sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'll be there to promote it when it when it comes out, man. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, I know you're, I know you're very busy, but um, Joshua Naderman, thanks for coming on and uh, until we talk again. Tyson, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I had no idea what I was stepping into, but you know, I talked to Yad. He said it'd be great. I talked to Philip. He said he had a great time, and that um, you know, he he also was like, you know, it's going to be great. And um, I, I just, it's been a great experience. Thank you. <laughs>